We can't all live in nature, but it doesn't mean we can't live naturally. And we should be able to get our needs met in every environment. That's the point. It's just more often not we here within the rewilding circles, at least it's like this demonizing kind of the zoo, the human zoo. But actually, it's not about demonizing the city life. It's about just dismantling, deconstructing ways of living that aren't really serving us in those environments and then reconnecting to ways of living that, of course, are more in sync with our human biology. In the lyrics of my friend Nick Mulvey, happy is the man that breathes in the morning. So it could be, right, I, I just sit and I just do some breath work, in bed even, just open my eyes. Instead of going, right, there's my phone and checking in, just check in with yourself, just breathe for a moment. Down regulation, start calm. It's the everyday stuff, it's the environment stuff. What can you take control of in your everyday habitat, in your everyday environment? Because otherwise all that work is just, it's literally symptom relief and you really need to get to the cause of it. Because we might be going, oh, running's the cause or cycling on the bike's the cause. I would say it's the stuff that you've been doing for 10 and a half a day, hours a day that isn't natural. Then you go and try and run with and try and cycle with that then compromises that chain. The Rich Roll Podcast. Stress, anxiety, overwhelm, fatigue, obesity, depression, and lifestyle illness are just a few of many hallmarks of our modern, fast-paced, convenience-focused world. And it doesn't really take a genius to see that what ails us is very much related to our disconnection, our divorce from food that nourishes us, from the movement that maintains us, and the natural rhythms of our bodies and the planet. So here to rewild us, to reconnect us with that which is most essential and remind us that we don't live in nature, but that we are nature is the barefoot, ultra running, unschooling lifestyle coach and legend himself, my friend, Tony Riddle, returning for his second appearance on the podcast, his first being a bit beyond three years ago. That was RRP 463. It's a great one. Check it out if you missed it. Today, we pick things up where we last left off in an old school, no video, audio only conversation that was convened during my recent visit to London. We cover his various endurance feats and training, his coaching philosophy, and the principles that underscore his wonderful new book called Be More Human, which is really this beautiful, Bible for deconstructing the ways of living that aren't serving us and reconnecting with new ways of living, ways that are more in sync with our human biology and allow us to thrive, to connect and meet our human potential. I always love spending time with Tony. He's super smart, very engaging. This one is full of practical and actionable tools that are gonna help you rewild, reboot, reconnect and refine your life. I think you're gonna dig it. So let's quickly take care of a little business and thereafter enjoy me and Tony Riddle. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with 
next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking Ons high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources, and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. 
And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try Waking Up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. Okay, let's do the show. Old school. Yeah, man. On the road. No crew. No video. No distractions, except the noise coming from Portobello Road, but you know. The downstairs. It's okay, man. The ambiance being here. Nice to be in your presence. Thank you for making the trip down from the countryside. Yeah. To the big city. Over, I guess. It's an over trip. It's over. But thanks, man. Thanks for inviting me. A lot has happened since we first met up at my house. I think it was almost exactly three years ago. It must be. Yeah. yeah. You've done a lot of things since then. It was pre Lands End John O'Groats, wasn't it? I was about to run that link. Right. I think it was Bethel. right before that. Mm. Right before that. And were you still living in London at the time? Yeah, we were living um, up in, in Hampstead. In Hampstead. Mm-hmm. And so. I was I was choosing routes where it was just mind mind numbing routes that you just go around places like Regent's Park and run round and round and round and round and round and round. Right. You know, and then knew that ah oh, well when I finally go off on the road it'd be like being unleashed. <laughs> this is a great running city though. There's so many epic places to explore by foot. Yeah, it's like I talk about this with the nature immersion work that I work with clients and um and now a bigger audience right through other forms of media in the book right, but it's um. 3,000 parks in London. Yeah, it's unbelievable how much greenery there is. 8.4 million trees. That's almost one tree per person in London to sit under and be. What an environment, right? It's gotta be up there with the top cities in the world in terms of how they've mindfully created an urban landscape while incorporating natural environments into the experience. Yeah, it's labeled as a forest now, isn't it really London? Mm. In terms of how many trees are available here, parks, allotments, gardens, it's vast. Yeah, and yet you split the city, headed to the countryside to live on like a regenerative farm or? No, we went to it, we went to we, Tell me about that. So um, it was like a big exodus out of London. So when London kind of went into lockdown, we were with, a, you know, four kids at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, what was then, a, um, I think Lola must have been 10, Tallulah, uh, Millie eight, Tallulah three, and then the young bowman came in, you know, and we were in a two-bedroom apartment in Hampstead with a terrace, and it's great because we're minimalist, right? And we live on the ground, and our beds are just mattress toppers that we can roll up and put away. So it's not like we're struggling for real space. There was space there, but we only really had a terrace. And whereas when we lived in Hampstead, the beauty of Hampstead was Hampstead Heath and getting mm-hmm. in the ponds and mm-hmm. actually being really close to that. And that there's a woodland there, right? One of those big parks we're talking about there. Um, when that was suddenly removed, it was like, oh, wow. Well, what is London for us? Right. You know, and need to rethink this. You know, and the reason we, we were living in Ibiza and we moved back to London, right? And the reason we moved back there because I was looking to get this book out into the world, right? And Katerina was the one who said, look, I think we should go back to London. You know, I think that's where we need to be. Until we get the book done, then we look at moving. And then it was like, well, the book's done pretty much. So... And at the same time, lockdown was hit and we were just, I guess everything was up in the air. Mm-hmm. 
And it was an opportunity then to really just tune in. Where, where do we want to be? And so we thought about the southwest, getting down to the southwest coast. And yet I was just about to go and run the Three Peaks. And a friend of mine, Seth, who owns this um, retreat space that is the uh, regenerative biodynamic farm, um, big retreat space, 42 acres it's known as, but it's like 170-odd acres there. He said, look we're not using the space. Do you want to come and stay for a weekend? I said, just perfect timing, Seth, because I'm just about to go on this next adventure mm-hmm. and explain this big endurance event I'm just about to go on with the whole family. And when we get back, we're looking at moving on. So we're looking at getting down to the Southwest, so maybe we can drop in on the way there. And he said, I love talking to you, Tony. Normally I speak to friends. It's like, what are you up to? And it's like, oh, I'm just about to go to this or do this event. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to go and crack the three peaks and run them barefoot. <laughs> Um, said, come and stay, we'd love to have you. So as soon as we arrived back, we were kind of done with London and we arrived at 42 Acres, which was meant to be a weekend. Um, Seth and his partner, Renata, were having a baby and they really liked having Katerina and the kids and myself around and were learning so much in that process. And Katerina's got such amazing wisdom when it comes to, you know, parenting and and that home lifestyle. Mm-hmm. She's like really refined it and... Um, like rewilding parenting in a way. So it became this, um, well, how long would you like to stay for? And I said, well, Katerina would really love to be here. She's just growing so much since being on the land. How about we cap it at six months? So we spent six months living on this huge estate with a small community because there's still a community of people there that look after this um, retreat space. Huge lake and we'd go from... You know, I could get up in the morning and just take a stroll to this big lake, sit, just be no one around, all the way through the winter, like cracking the ice to sit in there and just amazing experience. And it really highlighted, well, that's that's where we've really got to get to. So if anything, it was a stepping stone in thinking that uh, this, is, this is where it's at. This mm-hmm. is where we want to kind of move towards, let's say, knowing it was capped at only six months where we were staying. Six months came round and we still hadn't found a home. We were searching, but because of this big exodus, everyone wanted to leave London. It was an opportunity for sure. people to work from home. Suddenly people were really questioning their lifestyles at that time, right? But it meant the housing market, there was nothing. And even if there was, like four kids, and it just, it, it just yeah, we couldn't find anything. And our friends then at another retreat space called Broughton Sanctuary. It's in North Yorkshire. It's like a 3,000-acre estate. They're, they're rewilding. So they've re- reforested like 1,000 acres of this estate. Wow. I contacted them and said, look, we're a bit homeless at the moment. Do you think we can come and stay? And he was like, well, how long? I said, well, I don't know yet. We don't know. We're trying to find somewhere. The nomadic rewilding guy. Yeah. He needs a roof you know. over his head. And so we just, we rocked up and they were like, yeah, okay, you can stay. Um, we moved about a bit on the land where we could stay. And just before leaving, we managed to find a house where we are now. So it meant that there was something that within six, within a period of time we could come back to mm-hmm. and we had somewhere to stay, yeah. which is quite remote where we are now. It's super quiet. But it's an extension of walking your talk, right? Like everything that you're about indicates that this is the type of environment that you would choose to live in and raise your children in. Yeah, I think we originally we we left London. Katerina and I left London when Lola was um, a newborn, really, like nine months, I guess. And we were just assessing at that point, where would we want to be? And we moved out of London. And then we moved into, well, first of all, we went to my parents and we were living with my parents for a period of time for six months. Then we moved into Windsor and we lived in this lovely little community, like picket fences and cottages and a big willow tree in the square and no cars and... 
Um, but certain things weren't quite aligning. It was a community, but it wasn't aligned with, say, our values, right? So food was at question and, you know, just certain behaviours were at question and weren't quite where we were and they were on a different path. And, you know, it's um, no judgment of where people were, it was just their path, right? And so we, at that point, were like, well, where would we want to be? And then friends that I was with and bouncing in and out of London with, we're like, you should come to, you should come to Ibiza, have a look at Ibiza. So yeah. next thing we moved to Ibiza and that kind of was a transition. It never felt like it was going to become home, but what it allowed us to do is pluck ourselves out of that community and immerse in a community that were very much aligned. You know, suddenly it was, you know, cacao ceremonies, voice awakening work and plant medicines and yeah. ecstatic dance and all this stuff and being able to walk around butt naked and barefoot pretty much all day, <laughs> right. right? And we had Lola and Millie, then Antalula. And we were pretty much naked the whole time. It would be, come on kids, let's get, let's get to the beach. And the kids would just jump in. We had a bit of big old Cherokee at that stage, like, battered up old thing that didn't really, yeah, no one cared really. And the kids were in the back of that, climbing all over the seats naked. And then you get to the beach naked, get back in the car naked, <laughs> arrive back at the house naked. And that was life, right? Um, but unfortunately I was still having the flying and out. So I'd have to come into London and then back out. Had it been now, everything would have been online. It would have been very different for me. I could have, you know, we would, we would probably still be there, but there's this, notion that the island is like an island of transformation and when it and when it when it's when you're done it, you're ready to leave it kind of spits you out pushes you away yeah, yeah. And we it kind of felt that way so we were coming back one christmas it's a bit repetitive now but katarina had said look you know i think we need to go back and you've given us an amazing time here it's been amazing it's been incredible but um it's your time now let's get mm -hmm. this book done it's mm -hmm. kind of the that was the push yeah, and to get a book out, you have to participate in the world. You can't opt out of modern Western society and expect anybody to be interested in your book, right? So you have to remain in contact to some extent with London or urban centers in order to do that, which you did. But I think it brings up a central point that's at the core of all of your work, which is like, how do you live this more naturalistic lifestyle more symbiotic with you know your natural biological rhythms and those of the planet while also you know existing in the world because i think a lot of people it's easy to look at you and go oh he's the barefoot freak and he doesn't have any <laughs> furniture and his kids are running around naked and he's you know doing cacao ceremonies like that's not my life like that's not i don't i have trouble like accessing you know what aspect of that is applicable to like how I'm living. Being Unless relatable, I completely, right? Yeah, or relatable, right? Like, yeah, he's squatting, that's cool. Like, am I gonna squat? I don't know, maybe, but, um, but how do I connect with this? And I think really the power of be more human is this edict that you repeat, you know, over the course of the many pages, which is like, this is not about like being a Luddite per se or opting out. It's about trying to, you know, find a rhythm that works for you where you can kind of take from this wisdom and build these habits and practices into your life without completely disrupting the way that you live. Yeah, I think, uh, and, and again, it's walking that path and not just talking the path, right? So we, um, when, if it, I, think, I think if it wasn't for lockdown, we carved out a really nice lifestyle in London. You know, Hampstead was- we It's pretty great. Oh man, we had this amazing life. And um, again, you could have that nature immersion and except, you know, and, and throughout the book, I also put this, you know, we can't all live in nature, but it doesn't mean we can't live naturally. And we should be able to get our needs met in every environment. That's the point. It's just more often not, we, we, 
here we're in the rewilding circles, at least, it's like this demonizing kind of the zoo, the human zoo. Actually, it's not about demonizing the city life. It's about just dismantling, just deconstructing ways of living that aren't really serving us in those environments and then reconnecting to ways of living that, of course, are more in sync with our human biology. Mm -hmm. Like how we can move within everyday spaces. You know, if we looked at rewilding that way in the sense that I do, it's like you can rewild your movement, your gut, your sleep, you know, your everyday behaviours in those experiences. And I you, think that's that's that for me has been the the message really. And then it and then it's much more relatable. You know, I've 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 lived in cities, I get it, and I also get what it is to be a papa to four kids and have businesses in London, you know. Sure. You know, and still manage to carve out time to become an endurance athlete. So I'm hundred percent aligned, right? Yeah. I, I, I've I live it and I walk it, but also I have clients from all different backgrounds, all different demographics, right? From again, students through to billionaires, it's always the same message, right? My favorite is the example of the elder, uh, I think he's an Indian gentleman in the book, who you kind of walk through like how you helped him transition his life and how he kind of lived it hour by hour as an urbanite. Yeah, you know, so talking, what was that guy's name? So there's Yehudi in the book. Have you are we discussing Yehudi in yeah. there? Yehudi's a um, Jewish guy. He's um Oh he's Jewish. Yeah, he's um he was basically brought natural birthing really into the UK. So if anyone rewilded natural birth in the UK, it's it's Yehudi. And he was ostracized at that time when he brought it in. You know, there's amazing stories from him. But he originally came to me, yeah, wanting to learn how to walk, you know? And he was stooped, like a, he was 72 at the time. So it was like what our template perhaps might have been of a 72 year old, right? Stooped and, and just wanted to learn how humble just to come in and say, well, I want to learn how to walk. So I said, okay, let's just hop you up on a treadmill. Uh, I'll record you in first stages. You need to see what it is to walk, what it, what it looks like, right? Where you're at, otherwise you're just kind of this, there's incompetence there, subconscious incompetence until you drag it out. And then he's like very aware that it's conscious incompetence. So he could see the stoop and it was like, okay, let's go through these processes. And to start with, it was getting him back on the ground, just interacting with the ground. So like when we saw this guy without furniture, Yehudi became the guy without certain parts of furniture in his home, but at the age of 72. And and I think, I think the thing with age also, because... We, we have more patience in a way, you know, like he was really patient with it and could allow things to grow and open up and saw that it was a long game. Yeah, I think he, mm -hmm. that's what he grasped from the very beginning. So I had him interacting with the ground, then rewilding his feet, then rewilding his footwear. And there's amazing studies around there with footwear, you know, like Chris Dort, University of Liverpool, 60% of foot strength is lost. Well, they've, they've put people back in barefoot shoes or walked around barefoot, it's Vivo barefoot in this case six months of transitioning back into a barefoot footwear, they found a 60% increase in foot strength, but 40% increase in balance. So for someone like Yehudi, it's like, wow, okay, not just improving his, the way that he walks, it would be the way that he stands, it'd be the way right. that he squats, or we could then ramp things up and get him into running. So then that became movement for him on the ground. So even his work setup became a standing desk to squatting desk, you know, I mean, incredible. And then we had a tray beneath him that would have stones in it so he could have his feet rather than being on a flat linear surface. Right. He's now mm. interacting with that kind of those realms as well, very nourishing. And then eventually over time become hanging practices, lifting practices. And then I discuss his commute in the book where, you know, he wakes up and first of all, he's he's down to the next level of his house, he has a hang, and then he answers his email standing, then has his smoothie in the morning, then off he goes to the tube, kisses his wife goodbye, and off he went to the tube, 
And this is up until I think 79 before he's retired, right? And he'd walk down the hill, get onto the tube at Golders Green at this time. And the doors would open. People would automatically, because of his age, say, would you like to sit down? No, 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 he's okay. And he'd start hanging, right? Right. And I called it the, it's the hang, squat, surf on the tube train. The tube is the underground, right? And he'd hang between stops, right? So hanging on a train at 79, up to 79 Uh years of age at this point. And then when the doors open, he would either stand or he'd squat. And then the train starts moving again, he'd then surf. So surfing is not allowed to hold anything. You're using those pads that he's rewilded on his feet and his foundations to stand. And then it just becomes an opportunist. He's looking for more movement throughout the day. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have to find you do, he doesn't have to find an hour to go and train somewhere. He's just had a 30-minute commute on the train training, hanging, squatting, standing, surfing, which is like being on a power plate, right? Um, also choosing the stairs, not the escalator. And that's quite a phenomenal story, you know, it's very empowering because we often look at it and think, well, oh, you know, it's too late for me or, you know, I haven't got the time or, you know, and there's a great example of that. And he really shifted stuff within me. It was like, ah, oh, there's, there's a new template there for a 72, which was 79, who's now 81, you know, mm-hmm. an 81 year old. Now he's in cold immersion. So I tell this in the book as well, right? I'll share this. He, um, he heard he was terrified of the cold. I mean, properly terrified. He was born stillborn and he's kind of where he takes it into from the deep work he's done, the layering that he's got to, is that there was PTSD around cold because he was put on a cold slab, cold oxygen. And um, so whenever it was any discussions around, even going out in the cold, terrified, like where that thermogenic kind of loads of layers because he'd been conditioned to room temperature. So we held a workshop, it was called Move, Breathe, Chill. Uh, in the early days, it's now called The 100 Human Experience, but originally it was a Move, Breathe, Chill, movement, playful movement, breath work, like real conscious connected breath, and then into a freezer that I'd converted at my studio. The day before the workshop, he all agreed. Yehudi's like, yeah, I'm definitely coming, definitely coming. And then that night, an hour on a call with Yehudi, like, just talking him through, yeah, you're gonna be fine, man. It was like, he jokes, like a podcast in itself, being on a call for an hour, just going through this process with him. He arrived, being he, actually living the closest to the studio where the practice is, he was the late one, you know, rocked up. And once we got him through the breath, it's like, who's going first? I'm going first, he was straight in. And we have images of him, like this, like really mouth open, roaring, you know, primal roaring in the cold waters, like rite of passage at the age, I think he was 77 then, rite of passage at the age of 77. Dealing with that early trauma of cold, it was very evident in that moment. And then since then, he's been to either Hampstead Ponds or the River Lee, and it's been every day he goes into the River Lee or Hampstead Ponds. Year round. All year round, man. Wow. All the way through the winter now. That's a major complete shift. Yeah, now yeah. now eighty one, right? So now you're suddenly you're eighty one. You originally wanted to learn how to walk again, and through that he went. The reason he wanted to learn how to walk was I discovered that it was his dream for him and his wife Wendy to get to Everest Base Camp. So they walked Everest Base Camp for their fiftieth anniversary. That was wow. why. And then since then it's been Mount Kenya, Atlas Mountain. It's been and just. Incredible, right? Empowering yeah. at that stage, you know? Did you take blood markers also to kind of bear witness to any metabolic changes no, or any of that kind of stuff? I yeah, I don't get involved. Yeah, it's not your thing, stuff. man. No. 
<laughs> right? He looks good. He's happier. He's getting yeah, in the a, cold, right? He doesn't need he's, to get involved with that. Well, he's, he's just cruising experiencing. Up I think, you know, right. we're at this point where we are really, I, I talk about this in, I have an online community and it's like more information, more information, more information. And we are information rich and experience poor. It's like, how do I experience these things? What am I, what am I picking up on? What are my signals? It's like for me running now, it's like all controlled through breathing and down regulation. The moment I sense something, oh, I was picking up on it. I even, someone's asking me about this. I'm tackling this path. It's called the Southwest Coastal Path. And to, to run it, it's like a thousand Ks. All of this amazing coastline. But if you think the way it's banked, it's like this, the camber of it, right? So um, someone said, yeah, but you, you know, if you think about it, you're running at this, you know, it's same always going to be the same gradient, mm-hmm. the angle that you're running at. I was like, yeah, I know, but that's okay. They were, well, how are you going to deal with that? So I just, you just bend one leg more than the other, and then you're always running like this. And you think about, you know, I always think about the legs being like two wheels. You know, those little scooter bikes where you have the two wheels. So if you yeah. lean to your right, this, this wheel becomes shorter, yeah, to, right. the, to the lean, right? So it's literally just doing that around the bend. So I pull this leg of the right side to move to my right, and I pull this left leg more to my left. And it works like suspension system. So it's as if you were going over terrain, and if you went over a right bump, it's the right suspension that moves. Sure. You know? So you're then you're not, it's not felt elsewhere. So to go over the right bump, I just bend the right leg some more by pulling it. And you start to think of the legs being like wheels going over this. Yeah. Know? So so essentially developing a more robust mind-body connection so that you're in tune with how your body operates. 100%. And your point being that we abdicate so much control and decision-making to devices or experts and all of that short circuits our own ability to be more interconnected and to listen more deeply to what our body is trying to tell us. Like, oh, I, I, don't, need to, I don't need to feel that because this thing will tell me whether I am okay to work out today or not, right? Yeah, so much better articulated than me that Rich. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, 100%. Again, I innately wild, connected, empowered beings, I think it's all within us, you know? And I think the more convenient this stuff becomes, the more inconvenient it becomes over time. Yeah, he held up his phone. I picked up my phone. Yeah. I forget we're not on camera. <laughs> we're, not, we're not on video. So, you know, in other words, so all it's the like, off camber stuff and all yeah, of that. Like, I think people we'll get figure it, it out, you know? Anyway. But I, yeah, so imagine if you're running to your right, you, you pull up your right leg a bit more and, you, and it would be shorter on the ground. It's a bit like if you were standing right now, standing up. This is a great example. I had a guy called Janus come and see me and he um, was, was an amputee. And so standing through his um, two supports, you could see on the side where he's wearing a prosthetic limb, the limb's slightly shorter. And what it was doing is throwing out his pelvis slightly. So sure. a bit like running, if you were running and you were landing without those, that ability to understand shock absorption, you'd be driving one side of the pelvis up over time or hammering the knee over time or striking into the ankle too much. So with him, it was, okay, all you need to do is just bend your, bend, your, bend your right leg. So he bent his right leg and he just dropped his hips in. Rather than standing on a really strong, straight, rigid leg, just bend the knee slightly. And then took him through running and then barefoot running and then coached him into like technique of running. It was phenomenal. He's now mm. coaching. He's like this amazing coach in Mallorca now has a natural movement studio over there and is teaching basically natural movement within a practice which involves balancing, lifting, jumping, all of these practices, right? And it all came from that conversation of, ah, okay, there's back pain there. The reason there's back pain, they just bend the knee some more. So if you were standing and you, you were to put a block underneath your foot when you're standing, which would represent the bank where I'm running and it's dropping off into the sea, and you just bend that knee some more, it would bring your pelvis into alignment. And that's the way you look at running. It's as if you just bend one leg more than the other. They're both landing underneath right. you. And this is the danger of not having your feet landing underneath you. 
if you're swinging your legs like a pendulum, which is more associated with walking, that leg will have to be straighter and out in front of you when it makes impact with the land. Therefore, you can't bend it. Mm-hmm. Try and keep the feet underneath you. As if you're on this, um, like a unicycle, but it has two wheels, you know, and it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. You it get will it? be interesting. So you're you're in the final throes of, of training for this upcoming adventure. I wanna go through all the stuff that you've done since we first sat down, but right now you're getting ready to do this 2000 kilometer run that yeah. you're gonna complete in 22 days. This yeah. is what you're referring to, this South Coast yeah, path so it's known, or it's, like what is the- It's known as the Southwest Coastal Path. I see. And it's just north of where we're living now. It's a place called Minehead and you start in Minehead, which is Somerset. And then you run the coast of Somerset and then into Devon and then down to Cornwall, which is Land's End, sure. where I um, started Land's End, John O'Groats. And then you get back and then you get into South Devon and you finish in Dorset. So 630 mile or a thousand K route. Mm. The record is 10 days, 12 hours and 18 minutes. So that's gonna be my attempt. Um, and as far as I can see, no one has ever turned around and run back again. So I'm actually gonna do an out and back on right. the Southwest Coastal Path and attempt to get the record on the way out. And then in a true out and back sense would be then to get the record or under the record on the way back. Yeah, well, if nobody's done an out and back with it though, if you complete it, you at least get that yeah. FKT. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's FKT <laughs> in its own, right? Yeah, that's exciting. And, and, and knowing that that pavement will have a consistent off camber tilt to it the entire time, a thousand kilometers running, where it's not, you know, it's not a, a flat surface. Exactly. That it's, is a very the, unique it's, chance. It's one thing to say, well, I can run that distance for 10, 20, 30, 50 miles, but a thousand kilometers. Yeah, it's about hundred Ks a day, right? So, yeah. So you could call that five half marathons or 10, 10 Ks, whatever you want to call it, or 25 Ks per day. But it's the, they say it's one of the, it's the hardest trail in the UK. So it has everything. So in, uh, we were out, decided that we'd go and we'd discover some of it. Um, last weekend, so off we went with our bell tent, put a bell tent up, the whole family. And Catherine and the kids could be on the beach and I'd run out and back so I could go to the beach and then meet them for lunch and then mm-hmm. go off again. And so one route going from this place, this beach that we found called Perrinporth, going north to do 10K and then 10K back was sand dunes, right? Wow. So these massive sand dunes are going up and down because the sea was in. And then all of a sudden it's rock and then all of a sudden it's like steep climbs, um, 1,700 elevation just on that one little section. And then it drops down, then it's sand dunes again. And then all you have are these little signs every now and then, they're like acorns that show that it's the Southwest Coastal Path, but you're in the middle of sand dunes. And when you're in sand dunes, like people are always a little lost in sand dunes anyway. So you have all these different paths going off all over the place. So the navigation stuff's pretty tough. And then coming back to Perrinporth and then going out the other way, it's solid rocks and really high ascent elevation again. So on that route, it's not just a thousand K, it's all like that. So there isn't a moment when it's not. So the elevation's a bit insane. There's four Everests in, in, in terms of elevation on that route of a thousand. So it's a thousand wow. Ks and four Everests. So like, like 60,000 60, feet of gain. 115,000 feet. 115. Yeah, because Everest is 29.032, right? Right. Wow. And are you gonna do this barefoot or with Vivos or some combination of those two like you did on the Three Peaks? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm working with Vivo at the moment. So um, yeah, I'm not too sure how much I can actually put out there on this one. So it's with a, with a, 
I'm having my feet scanned and we're kind of having more um, bespoke footwear for Tony right, right. now. Right. Um, special Tony edition. Yeah, man. Well, my feet, are, yeah, they're quite wide. They, they basically, yeah. they've had this model of like from normal to where is supernatural. Uh-huh. And I've now kind of pushed the boundaries of where supernatural <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah. So well, at this point with the amount of kilometers you've, you know, you've put on those bare feet of yours, yeah. you know, I would imagine they've morphed in unusual ways. Well, it's the strength again, isn't it? You know, you think of that foundation and, you know, I've spoke about this before with you, but there's 26 bones, 33 articulations and this, you know, accumulation, right? There's a hundred muscles, tendons, ligaments, but 200,000 receptors in your feet. So it's in a foot. We're just talking in one foot. I mean, that's incredible, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, where where can we take that, you know? Where can that go? And I'm really interested in the physiological adaptation. I love all that. But where my mind's going now is more towards, well, even the microbiome, right? Obviously not, when you're living in London, it's like dysbiosis, right? Whereas you're on the back out in nature and the sand dunes or the beach or the trail and the roots and the rocks. And what do we get from that experience? And um, footwear's a modern phenomenon. It would have been skins or something, right? Something would have protected mm-hmm. us from thorn or whatever it is, but we still would have been having this amazing experience and more natural underfoot, the more natural the experience and outcome, right? So I'm more interested in the, well, the microbiome's one, but the neuroplasticity, what is it? You know, what, what is it that we're also losing from dumbing down that information? So if you went over that terrain in lots of cushion, you don't really notice the difference through your feet. What is sand? What is rock? What is mud? What is root systems? It's just all one thing because it's just the inside of a shoe. And, and also the shoe is shoe shape, not foot shape. So you're, even, you're compromising even the shape that you would receive that information through. So I'm more interested in that. I'd like to go into a study where we look at perhaps, you know, what's, what, what is that? What is mm-hmm. lost through that behavior? Mm-hmm. A bit like the picking up my iPhone again now, a bit like the convenience of this. What are we losing in that process through becoming more convenient, right? Right. You know, the neuroplasticity, think of navigation, right? Sure. Following GMAPs versus actually navigation. It's that abdication because once you once you kind of inure yourself to Google Maps, then you're not really paying attention to your environment because you already can, you know you can just look there and it'll tell you where to go. Like yeah. we all know what it was like as kids, you know, you either had to have a map or you had to figure it out, right? Yeah. And so you kind of have to be a little bit more aware of what's going on around you or you're gonna get lost and you don't have a cell phone to call anyone. Now, all of that is taken care of. So we can just kind of, bumble about, uh, you know, without worrying about whether we're gonna run into any kind of trouble. And I think your point about neuroplasticity is super interesting. Like that signaling, you know, with all those nerve endings on the bottom of your foot, like what are those signals that are being sent to the brain and what is being, what are the pathways that are getting kind of reaffirmed or strengthened in, you know, in, in your brain as a result of that experience. Yeah, I That's think- That's a cool idea. Yeah, like rewild, there's rewilding the feet, but there's also rewiring, right? There's a rewiring that's happening there, right? Through different environments that become more and more nourishing, right? What is it, what is, what is the difference between mm-hmm. this? And it's never changing, right? If you're more naturally expression again, but you could take it beyond feet and just think, it's in the book again, I have this organic, um, inorganic consumption leads to inorganic behaviors and being, right? So really, the more organic the consumption, the more organic the behavior and being. I'm not just talking what we consume as in what we eat. It's like thinking, well, what am I absorbing from all of my senses? So even just wearing huge amounts of layers and not experiencing nature again through my skin or through my eyes and my ears or 
running with headphones in. What are you, what are you, what are you removing yourself from, right? And then the layers and the skin and the contact and what we inhale, like, you know, even running through a forest, look at the amazing potency of a forest. They're now linking to like phytoncides that are antibacterial, antifungal, right? And we're missing all of that. That's so valuable, right? For ourselves and our own senses, that's antibacterial and antifungal. But I had this profound thought the other day running through a forest and I was thinking it was um, almost like a, tr- like a farm really for trees, you know, where it's for softwoods, which aren't native or indigenous to that land. So what's the difference then for us? You know, as we go on this path of reforesting the globe, right? Because we feel like we have to reforest now. What are we losing in creating straight lines of trees and planting the same trees that perhaps aren't indigenous, you know, because perhaps those trees in those ancient woodlands are there for that, you know, the being within that environment mm-hmm. to inhale the properties that are specific in that environment for healing. You know, what are we what are we losing in that? I anyway, was a mm-hmm. profound thought the other day, taking right. it beyond Yeah, well, the, we're, we're applying our matrix on top of nature rather than just allowing nature to, you know, do what it would do. Like it'll find its own way to optimize that environment yeah. and thrive without our involvement. Yeah. So the difference between like purposefully reforesting or rewilding an environment versus like allowing or just letting it letting it be and letting it do whatever whatever it wants to do. Yeah, the control is the controlling within that again, right? Mm-hmm. Of where we would like it's like rather like um, a board game in a way. I'll chuck in a bit of that and I'll throw in a bit of that and I move that over there and I'll play with that. Oh, there we go. Yeah, there is a little we, bit of human hubris that gets injected into that. I mean, I'm sure there are ecosystems that are so decimated it requires some human intervention yeah. to like how do we you know expedite the process of getting this back into a healthy state but absolutely yeah i have friends that are really heavily involved in rewilding and regenerative processes now and it's come a long long way it really mm-hmm. has and you there's planting methods i think it's known as the milwaukee method now and they kind of plant different groups of trees that you know become friends and it's not straight lines it's yeah. like that could bring back what would be the community or the friends of the trees. So that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Right? What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Are you uh, are you acquainted with Darren O'Lean? Have you no. met Darren? No. Uh, he's my buddy back home and you guys are very much on the same page. He does lots of things. He has a podcast, but he, he does these segments on his show and he's writing a book about this on the subject of like fatal conveniences, like these things you were just referencing, like all of these things that we do, these habits that we've adopted that are part and parcel of just being in the modern world that we think are making our lives easier, but are actually like, if you really deconstruct them are not in our best interest. And, you know, just to be kind of more mindful of the truth behind these things, whether it's chemicals we, we apply to our skin or, you know, using Google maps instead of paying attention more, there are, you know, just an en endless laundry list of things that we really don't think twice about that perhaps require a second look. And you're kind of the master, the Zen master of all of these things. Well, it's come, it's come around because I, um, we, unfortunately, it was my um, grandmother's funeral, but my, I had an uncle there. Um, they came back to the house, and we were discussing. He had to get, he had to climb my parents' stairs to go to the toilet, and he said, "Oh, it's so difficult getting up the stairs these days." And and I started to unpack like what that means, and well, my mum calls them bungalow legs. So bungalow legs are when you start living on a single story house suddenly the stairs become challenging because a single story house called a bungalow here, right? So suddenly you develop bungalow legs so that to get up the stairs is now a huge effort. It's become inconvenient. Whereas living on one floor was convenient at one stage, right, for them. So for him, it's become inconvenient. The stairs are now a struggle. And then we went, we went right into then, well, even thinking about food systems, right? What it would have been at some stage for us, right, to get food. If we went right back to hunter-gatherer foraging and then suddenly into farming, and agriculture and it would have meant huge pulling and pushing and involvement still on the land. Not the same as what foraging or hunter-gatherer, but there's still a huge physiological meta metabolic load for that, right? Versus now where we just, I'm picking up my phone again, we just pull, pull so we pull the screen down and we push a button, mm -hmm. right? That's getting food, right? So there's, again, that's hugely convenient, yes, but look at how disconnected we are from that system. That's just the physiological stuff, but think about how disconnected we are from actually the senses, that neuroplasticity again, or opening up digestion even. Like that old, um, I had a guy called, um, was it Mindful Martin? He was on one of my very first retreats and Mindful Martin came and he had um, a raisin for each one of the attendees and he puts a raisin in the hand. Have you played this before? No. And you, and you look at the raisin, spends about an hour with this raisin right in your hand and you're rolling the raisin around and the raisin before your very eyes just gets bigger, bigger, right? It's like just keep in, in you're identifying all the wrinkles of your raisin, right? And looking at this thing as if it's like that you've never seen a raisin before, but it goes on and on. It's like this process that he takes you through and you realize you're suddenly salivating, right? All your salivary enzymes are up, right? Because your whole digestion is prepared for this raisin, right? 
And then eventually it allows you to touch your lips with the raisin. You touch your lips and again, it's like, oh my God, it's raisin. And then finally, when you put the raisin in your mouth, it's like the best raisin you've ever tasted, right? <laughs> yeah. So you bring that into like foraging and foraging. Like, I did a retreat at 42 Acres where we were staying mm-hmm. for a period of time. And Tasha's there. She's this amazing foraging coach and she pretty much lives on the land. And But I can identify stuff, but lives it. It's different to, oh, these are the five things you can pick and these are five things you can't pick. She lives it, right? And breathes it and is so knowledgeable. And so I took people on this adventure where um, I took them into the woods in like a line. Like a, um, well, firstly, I stopped them at the entrance to the woods and I said, right, okay, I need you to repeat these words. Trust the process, respect the process, be patient whilst in the process. And while you finally figure out this is all process, you just be. And then, yeah, okay, so right, and I, here's a blindfold. I'm going to put your blindfold on. So they put a blindfold on and, I, and then I walk them in a chain. And the person at the front is my friend Arthur at this stage. And he has his eyes wide open. He's now walking them into um, the forest and then around this lake. And then I position, I take one off the back and I put them into the forest beneath a tree or one was particular was like in amongst these bluebells in wild garlic. It was insane, like high definition for your eyes. Sit, like next one, next one, next one. And then they had to practice 100 cycles of breath, like alternate nostrils for right and left hemispheres. And then once you'd completed your 100 cycles, you take your blindfold off. And then I'd come back around. By the time I dropped everyone off around this lake, I was back to the start. And you just, like this, completely blown away by the senses of completely opened up through breath, being blindfolded and hearing nature and then suddenly seeing nature as if they were on psychedelics or something. It was the, like their first experience seeing nature again, but fully plugged in. And then I'd have them then taking 10 things that they can find in the area to build something, a structure, some kind of using their, I called it their imaginative architectural minds at that stage. And to build something that with intention and that they could either, it's a gift to the forest or they could perhaps come back and that was where they, their place would be. And, and then I then, we then finished that, walked them back and met Tasha in the forest kitchen. And then she took everyone out to forage and their senses were completely open. She says she'd never had a group that were that open before, like feeling everything, touching everything. Mm. And whatever they picked then became part of the dinner in the evening for the forest kitchen. That was absorption, that was digestion, that was fully having a relationship to the food on their plate, you know? And compare that to, you know, again, it's in the book, right? I put Maslow's hierarchy of needs in there and understanding your fundamental needs like food, right? And if your fundamental need is, is one of the, basic fundamental needs at the very bottom of the pyramid, right? And that would be getting a food need met, right? Versus we're in Portobello Road right now and I've got to get the tube and I'm going to leg it into this convenience store here and tear in there, grab a sandwich that has a really long shelf life or something, you know? Um, Not caring about the soils that it comes from or any of that relationship, just tear it open and wolf it down as quickly as I can in an upregulated state to get on the tube. And then, you know, being enthralled in the chaos of London, right? All upregulated because I've been rushing. Who gets their food need met, right? In that relationship, because that's not absorbing that food, right? And it's where the food comes from. So it's having a, even down to that level, like having a better relationship with the food, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. The heightened, you know, sensitivity to your environment that is, so accessible through some pretty basic, basic, yeah, exercises, um, free, and 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 I couldn't help but think, yeah, free, uh, <laughs> truly available to all of us that can create that kind of shift, and then the neuroplasticity piece, right? Like, 
I'm sure certain areas of your brain then light up, right? Like that, that heightened, that. yeah, like then to go forage in that heightened state to be so much more aware of what's available to you is powerful. And then what is the shelf life of that? Because for someone like yourself, you live it, you've, you've had these experiences, you've carried them into your life and you've built you know, a life around those practices. I'm interested in whether you know, those people who had that experience when they go back to their life, do they find a way to build that in or does it kind of dissipate? And before you know it, they're kind of back to doing what they were doing. Yeah, it's, that's, um, that's, it's that's giving the sort of flaw in the human. It's always giving them tools. <laughs> because I, I, yeah, I have this, um, you know, I no longer call retreats retreats, I call them experiences because retreats would sense that, you know, retreating from something mm-hmm. right? and that's bad, this is good, right? But for me, it's an experience and we gain something from an experience, right? And for some of the, some of the people there, it's just understanding there's a relationship with food, you know? So there's a sensitivity around with food that might just be preparing your meal or a number of meals per week. And then the other one was just to sit and be with the food you're about to eat or downregulate with breath just before you're about to eat. They're again, very simple practices that you can then offer. And then when we start to downregulate and we start to take more time, we're no longer so chronophobic as well, right? That fear of time, I've got to get to this place on the, you know, and, it's, and actually we carve out more time for ourselves because we start to feel so amazing within those practices themselves, right? It's like getting here, I could have easily, you know, jumped in a cab or got the tube, but it's like, no, you know, it's 30 minutes, an amazing walk, right? You know, and for some that, you know, and I, if I think back to when I was, you know, I said when I arrived, oh, it reminds me of my mid-20s to early 30s. I'd be in a cab, right? Yeah. I'd probably be hammered in a cab, yeah. you know, around this area. So, um, and, and it's equally understanding that we're all on this amazing path, right? And it's for some that have been on those experiences with me, for some it's just identifying that understanding of this is what it looks like in nature almost. And this is what it looks like in the human zoo. And how can I bring some of these practices into this everyday environment? And also it's, it can be just small steps. You know, if you think about going up a flight of steps, there's a step and then there's a, there's a flat part of the step and there's an up part of the step. So there's a small part of the experience and then you have to integrate it, right? So I make a step, integrate, then on the flat part, go up again, integrate, flat part, um, rather than seeing it as this huge incline, mm-hmm. you know, because that's, you suddenly look at that and you're like, oh my God, that's a huge step I've got to make. And the point being with these practices, it's not. You know, it took minutes actually just to enter the woods with your eyes closed. And it took minutes actually to do 100 cycles of breath. You know, you could try just before every meal, even this practice, like inhale up through your nose. You don't even have to count because self-and counting gets in the way and it's a chemical metabolic cost for thinking. So just try and inhale for as long as you can into a relaxed belly, start by relaxing your pelvic floor and your lower abdomen, breathe in for as long as you can. Now try and extend the exhale. And by extending the exhale, we get a lowering of heart rate and blood pressure. And six cycles of that is a minute. Just do that before eating. Mm -hmm. At least you're then, you're improving the absorption of the food. Mm Because if we're not doing that, then what are we doing? It's just satisfying a want. Whereas we need to think about more about needs. Food is a need, but I have to digest it to reach the need, right? So how can I look at improving absorption? And I think, yeah, those practices might seem extreme, but it doesn't take a minute, you know? Right. Four seconds in, six seconds out, six cycles, one minute. Do that before you eat. Or grace, sit with your family and just have grace, you know, before you eat. 
bring right. back those old practices, you know? Mm-hmm. It, yeah, that is a means of, of down-regulation, right? Yeah. On some level to just bring a little conscious awareness into your daily experience and to, you know, mindfully engage with yourself to, you know, create an optimal state, whether it's for eating or for walking into a stressful situation. I mean, I think I wanna spend a little bit more time on down-regulation. I think that's, that's like a really powerful takeaway for people. Um, It was cool to see you demonstrate that in the documentary, like after a hard day on the Three Peaks run to like lay on a bed and like prepare your body for a state of overnight repair, right? Like to enter that phase of this extended endurance adventure with a conscious intention and a technique to kind of lure your physiology into a place where it can be receptive of that experience. Yeah, it's restorative again, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think firstly describing like upregulation, downregulation, right? So upregulation, we could call fight and flight. You know that fight and flight response or fight flight freeze that we experience that's almost been normalized. Well, yeah, we're all in a chronic state of it. Yeah, so again, if we look to nature as an example, there's Bruce Parry is a great person to talk to because he spent so much time with independent tribes and he talks about this Pen- the Penan and the Benjeli tribes and how they're just in a frequency that you and I can only really achieve through meditation, right? They're, they're in there, tuned in, right? And they're in this perfect harmony the whole time through left and right massaging that, those hemispheres. And that's a real down regulation, they're in that. And only when it becomes an, a threat or an acute, it becomes an acute response, fight and flight. It's acute. It's not meant to be this extend, extended chronic state. So we, so they're in down regulation, say for their percentage, let's say it was a 90-10 or an 80-20 even, right? 80% down regulation in this rest and digest, moving through a landscape, being the landscape, in that foraging state that I took people in blindfolded, that's them, right? That's where they're at. Why I bring those practices in because it's so inspiring hearing that. And then 20% might be, oh, I need to be in alert state. But even their alert state, I would say, is more of a um, positive alert state. It's mm-hmm. like on, you know? Mm-hmm. Not anxious, but on, you know, just versus then it can be, um, we talk about the chronophobic kind of behavior of, let's talk about the underground, right? So behavior in the underground sometime when we lived in London. And people would go, I had one guy come tearing down the stairs and he hit the bottom of the stairs and then he went to do like a turn to the left, but he did like a Scooby-Doo of his legs and his legs carried on going, and then he he just planted, that was it, face planted on the deck. And then got up, brushed himself and then carried on running. And the doors of the tube shut and it went. And then when when I finally arrive at the platform and I look up, the next one's in two minutes, you know, because the tube trains are every two minutes, right? It's two right. minutes to the next one. So right? the, the induced state of panic for no real benefit, like there's no, there's no payoff for inducing that like state of fear and anxiety. Yeah, and it starts like, it, it, there's, I mean, there's stages to it, it's accumulative. And unless we find practices that enable us to step outside of it, this is why experiences or what could call them retreats, right? Or workshops, then enable us to get tools that we can then bring into those everyday environments, right? That can change our, maybe even our internal beliefs, but certainly allow us to step outside those everyday behaviors that perhaps aren't serving us, right? And then to make real change, I can come back, ah, oh, suddenly, oh, how about this in the, in the lyrics of my friend, Nick Mulvey, happy is the man that breathes in the morning, right? 
So it could be, right, I, I just sit and I just do some breath work, in bed even, just open my eyes. Instead of going, right, there's my phone and checking in, just check in with yourself, just breathe for a moment. Down regulation, start calm, you know, and then try and remain calm. And I'd prefer even to rock up two minutes late for something calm than I would to be upregulated mess because it's about then who's receiving me and what am right. I bringing into that? Yeah, what, what energy are you? you know? Like, and then everyone else goes all upregulated. Right. Imagine we're like, we're you're, you're not getting a good result out of that. No, it's mm. like turning up for a meeting or imagine an interview or whatever it is and you're in that state. And I go for a lot of these practices with our kids because it's so important at a young age to learn this. If I knew most of these modalities when I was a kid, I would have crushed it. You know, instead I was a mess in all my exams, didn't come away with anything. And, you know, it could just be a simple practice with kids. Imagine mock exams, Rich, were about, oh, you go through these practices as well as doing the exam so that you can remain calm in that situation. Because you know what? This exam is going to, this might be how the rest of your life plays out in this moment, right? And for some it is. There's so much involved in their education that that's their careers and everything for the rest of their lives. But not being taught, well, these are practices that will enable you to think smarter in that Mm -hmm. environment, you know, Mm -hmm. and behave differently within it. So what would be one of those practices? I mean, you you took us through the simplest of breath exercises, but I know you do a lot of stuff with like alternating nasal breaths. Like what would be one tool that you could give to people? I would would work with those extended exhales really. Like if you put your finger on your pulse, when when you inhale, you'll notice your pulse picks up. And then as you exhale, you get a lowering of your pulse. So it's tuning into that lowering of the pulse. So even if you had someone that had, you know, blood pressure, right? Oh, I'm gonna go down my blood pressure red. Go to the doctors, blood pressure goes up for most people when they enter the doctors, right? But if you started extending your exhales, you'd have a different outcome. So think of it like that. I start to extend exhales. It's whenever I've been on radio or it's been TV, which was new for me, I used to sit and just put a breathing app on. I, I put this on now. This is by Eddie Stern. Eddie Stern's like a, Ashtanga teacher that put this free app out into the world is brilliant, it's genius. And it just has a sliding scale of, and you can set ratios on there. So this is like a four. Um, four seconds in, six seconds out. Mm. And it just gives you that tone. It has a circle on that inflates and then closes back down again. Right. And I have people working with that. And that, um, that app is called his name, it's Eddie Stern? Called, no, it's called Breathing App. Oh, so it's breathing just Breathing app. app, it's free. Mm. Um, if you have trouble finding it, look up Eddie Stern. He was, I think he was a Stanger teacher like Madonna and people like that, but amazing he's put a free app out there, right? And um, so it has this disc on it. So even if you're in a situation, it could be a quiet coach or something and you can't have the sound on, you just follow that inflated ball and it closes and opens and you just work with the breath to that. And it's so hypnotic. I get people that are having trouble sleeping, five minutes of that, they're done. Right. It's so quick to drop in. And it's a tool that you can just carry in your pocket, right? Um, and then eventually it gets to the point where you're just familiar with the breath, like the four seconds in, six seconds out. Um, where to breathe through. And, I, you know, there's a lot of people out there operating like the breathing police at the moment, right? You need to breathe through your nose and breathe through your mouth. Whatever is comfortable. So it could be, I prefer you to inhale up for your nose. There's this whole relationship with nitric oxide and what that does. It's a vasodilator and bronchial dilator. So we know that with blood pressure and, and how we basically absorb oxygen, it's going to improve through that breath, through the nose. It's also associated with parasympathetic rest mm-hmm. and digest again, right? So down regulation. And then you have these extended exhales and that could be out the nose or out the mouth. Just that's one way. So that's breath. Um, equally, it could be, um, there's one of those 3,000 parks in London or one of those 8.4 million trees that 
is nearly enough for every person in London to sit under. The studies show just 20 minutes in nature is enough to lower heart rate and blood pressure. Just 20 minutes, mm -hmm. you know. Equally, you can get that through staring at um, nature scenes like that on the wall with the trees there over your shoulder. Um, books with nature scenes in, equally, they've been suggested that that will lower heart rate and blood pressure. So if, even if it was at your desk, have something living on your desk that is, you know, within that urban linear box that we're in. Then just maybe if you're walking anywhere is to think one step, one breath and start to slow the walk down, appreciate the walk and even think about getting taller, you know, rather than shorter looking down at a screen, become taller, take in your environment and your settings. Um, what's the other new stuff that's coming through? The um, visual field work, so looking at the visual field, opening mm -hmm. up that panorama, opening mm -hmm. up the view, that's also associated with parasympathetic. So if you think of our screens being the obviously the complete opposite of that, like really focused in, hypervisual state, right? Um, is associated then with what would be a sympathetic state, this right. fight and flight. So, a wider, taking a wider gaze and a softer. Yeah, and trying to soften your visual field yeah. and wider. So, and especially if you're out in nature, like those guys that took those blindfolds on, like, wow, okay, and open up the visual field. So if you think visual field, breath work, nature, and then, you know, it's not enough even just to, you know, I, I did a piece on this the other day. It's, it's even with meditation and breath work, we can often just get and sit, like with the breath, I'm just gonna sit now and do some breath or meditation. But if your physical vessel is starved of movement and compromised and stiff and rigid, and then really it's not the best vessel to receive. So I would look at kind of just some mobility practices as well that help, especially with that respiratory symptom. Think of where that is. Oh, it's the thoracal spine. Can I do some mobility or ranges around that to open things up? Hanging is brilliant for that, okay? Because again, it opens everything up. Um, enables that whole respiratory pathway to open up. And then again, just look at moving throughout your day, like moving through a landscape and make it make it inconvenient, make movement inconvenient. Look at your landscape, right? How do I get from there to there in the most inconvenient way, mm -hmm. you know? I set people in my online community, it's called NatLife Tribe and I give them homework. I meet them three times a week and I give them homework. We might finish on some simple like low gate walking or crawling practices. And right, your homework is you have to hoover your whole apartment in a low gate walk. So a low gate walk is like being on the ground almost, right? real knees over toe work, trying to remain upright. As if you were down in a low squat with your heels up, but you could walk in that position. Right. Yeah. And so it's as if you're foraging off the ground like that, but now you're hoovering instead because we no longer forage off the ground. And then others might be like crawling, right? Now you have to think of weird and wonderful ways to crawl around your apartment because again, it's hugely nourishing, right? Mm. And it's stuff that we've lost within this landscape. Mm. And the thing about this landscape, unfortunately, again, on that term of neuroplasticity, we are literally just moving from one linear box to another linear box on another linear street, right? With headphones in or heads down in phones. So it's, how can we, how can we nourish that within those urban environments? So again, it's, you know, it's not demonizing the city, but it's finding ways of living within it that are enhancing, you know? Right, and it, it, it does require you to kind of, set aside your ego a little bit. I mean, you have all these videos of you like crawling around on the ground with your kids and like waving your arm, flapping your arms around and stuff like that. Like there's a little bit of shared DNA with Ido Portal and the work that he does, like bringing play into all of this, yeah. making it joyous and fun and, and, and not being so self-conscious. Like, you know, we're not gonna be able to go down on Portobello Road and crawl around, you know, like, we might get arrested. I don't know, you probably do this or have done it. I don't you know, but I, you know, it's like people are gonna clam up like, I can't, I can't be that way yeah. in the world, right? Yeah. Like, but how can we let go 
a little bit of that. I mean, you've got a quote, something about like, we have to become less ego conscious and more echo conscious and echo being broadly defined as, you know, our physical vessels, but also our, our environment in which we, you know, share. Yeah, so it's um, disconnecting from the ego system and reconnecting to our ecosystem. Mm. And there's practices in there that I, I call rechilding, right? So it's about taking people through a process so that they can remove all, the, all that armor and awkwardness that comes. You know, it's like, when did adulthood, when, when did it become so serious, right? When, when was that? What was the point? And I often talk about schooling because we unschool and it's not again to demonize schooling, but it's to say, well, what happens within that schooling environment, right? Whereas we are very playful. If I look at my youngest, he's like just just play the whole time, right? He's even playing with his emotions when he lets rip and just, you know, starts tearing the house down or whatever he's doing. He's still playing, he's playing with emotions. And then Tallulah is like, she's our Boudicca. She's like really wild and roaring and, you know, just full of energy, but they're so playful. And so that's up until Tallulah's now six. So she would be ready for school, right? Five or six. And then you enter that environment and then that play that you're allowed to play with all your emotions and your expressions is suddenly in a container, right? In a linear room all mm. of a sudden, in a chair with a hierarchical system. And suddenly you're no longer allowed to speak when you would normally just let rip and just let stuff go. So we all then get a bit locked up even in our throat chakras, if you think about that from a very early age, right? So that's expression that goes. And then we're allowed out to play in an environment that is adult-led in a way, right? It's painted lines and mm -hmm. stuff that we think they would want to play around There's very on. specific parameters of what that play can yeah, and can't and, be. And, and within health and safety, right? So it's not, it's not, this isn't, again, it's not the schooling system, it's the systems that we've created over time, right? And then within that, then you're then returned back to the classroom environment. And then over time, that play experience becomes lunch break, right? And then you have PE, and PE is then very specialized, less generalist. Very, there is play within it, but it's specialist play, so it becomes a sport, right? And it's rep repetition and repetition of movement in a way. So my practices have been, that we, we have these workshops now called the 100 Human Experience, and it starts with an opening circle, usually around a fire, and then we set intentions and we have people kind of intro within it, and then, then I open up play. So it's now the circle opens up, and I have people just meandering around in a circle, and they walk around, they brush shoulders, they make eye contact. Now they bump shoulders and bump bums together and all of a sudden laughter comes immediately. It's done. Like within five minutes, complete strangers suddenly just giggling away. And then it continues right now. You stop and you hold their shoulders, you look at them in the eyes, then you carry on walking. And then eventually it's like, right, you stop, make eye contact, really strong eye contact, then walk off again. Because if you'll notice here, very little eye contact will occur in where we are right now in London. Right? And then eventually those layers, those facades, the, that armor is broken down with 100 complete strangers. Suddenly you start working as one, that collective bonding starts to occur. And then I have them holding each other's shoulders and then yelling into each other's eyes, you are loved, right? And all of a sudden you can see people just cracking at that moment, right? It's very emotional even just to have someone look at you in the eyes and say you are loved. And especially after you've dealt with getting the armor away that's broken through that allows that emotion. And then it continues and it turns into this very playful, um, there's so much humor and belly laughter that is in that moment. And when we return back to the circle before going into the next practice, which is usually breath, the sharing is always, you know. Sure. You know, oh my God, it's, it's as if I've just re-entered back there and I can't believe that I gave all that away, and, you know. And, 
and that that's recharging just as that's rewilding but it's recharging for me and you know it's 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 such a powerful powerful practice almost beyond what the breath work and the ice bath is because you're stripping away many many layers there mm-hmm. and going back into a playful state of mind it's like play isn't just play it's a, it's a state of mind which then opens up new worlds and we have people that well we've all been stuck at some point right and we get stuck and we almost get stuck in a character and we can get stuck in a character of depression i'm holding men's circles and the amount of guys that come on those circles who are locked in with depression right and we go through the same practices like really playful stuff and it's a way all of a sudden of reconnecting with your imagination brain let's say right and you can imagine yourself in as a different being altogether. You can imagine yourself in a completely different position in life. You can imagine yourself as someone completely different to the person that's stuck right now. And they reawaken from that through acts of play. There's trauma work in play. It's fascinating when you go into it, like as a, as a modality for dealing with uh, mental health issues even, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have to say, well, where does that stuff enter? Oh, well, is it perhaps when I had my playful state of mind removed? Could it be that, that I no longer can imagine myself in these different worlds? And I think we talked about this on the last podcast. There's that, um, it's Peter Gray. He wrote this book called Free to Learn, right? So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention it again because I think it's really valuable. As He asked 10 leading anthropologists what play looks like in nature. And they look at three independent tribes, different geographic locations. And first, the first thing they come back with, all, all of them, is like they're the most well-adjusted, well-rounded individuals they've ever met, right, mm-hmm. are the children. Mm-hmm. And what, is it, what does it look like? And they said, well, from infancy through to teenage years, all the kids do is play. And they play at being um, everything within the environment. So that they, play at even being, they play at the adults. So imagine through that experience, they have birth, they have death, they have all these different rites of passage that occur, but also they learn to track animals. They learn that stuff that I've taught people blindfolded to go into. They learn foraging seals. They can build shelters. They can track. So suddenly they um, they enter adulthood. Is adulthood any different then? Isn't it not just the playful state of mind that they're achieving, they're managing to walk around with? It then brings Bruce Parry's work in where they're in this permanent state of meditation that you and I can only achieve. Is that possible for us then? You know, if you think about it, if you really unpacked it that way. So there's, there's so much to that playful state of mind that we could open up and unpack. Yeah, the level of layers, the extent to which we build these you know, castles around our identities and our personas and the adherence to social constructs and rules, all of that calcifies our ability to just be who we are and mm. play by its own definition requires a sort of transcendency of the logical, rational, Mm. you know, like looping mind, right? It is a flow state of sorts in the sense that when you're playing, you're not really thinking about what you're doing, you're being, right? And when you're being, there isn't room for all of those narratives to get in the way, right? But the more we erect these walls around ourselves, the more difficult it is to connect with that primal state of play because the ego intercedes and tells us like, you'll look like an idiot if you do that. Or, hmm. you know, what is somebody gonna say if you behave in this certain way? And all of these things create a prison of our own making yeah. that is driving, you know, it's, it's obviously more complicated than that, but, you know, has to be on some level at the root of some of these, you know, depressive tendencies that we're seeing on the rise. 
Yeah, I, I, again, I think it goes back to imagining yourself in other realms even, you know, and those kids in nature again, they're learning everything about their environment. They're, I mean, that's one consciousness, is it not? That's understanding real biodiversity because you've literally been everything within that habitat, right? So, um, and then versus like the men's circles that I'm holding, you know, in the UK, it's like, what is the number one killer in men under the age of 50 is suicide, right? So there's a, there's, what's happening here right right and there's something uniquely british about not you don't your men are not demonstrative in their emotions here by default right well again i think there's I think, a cultural norm around think like how, how far we go back though it's like where do we go because if you think about the say the celt ancestors they were again about being and being at one with land and huge emotional stories and and weaving folks stories and song and uh, is it it feels to me it's almost like when the written word come in almost, you know, it's like that, that what, what did we lose in those processes? But I think you're 100%, I think for the guys that I meet, suddenly you get them in a circle and yet they're communicating all of a sudden. You create a ceremony and then it's as if, it's so in our DNA to hold ceremony in circle. When you create it, men open up and start sharing. Mm. That is very different. You know, so I think it's it's within us. It's almost in those what I call the like the primordial, like union primordial database. It's within us, right? There's something within our DNA that ceremony and circle enables us to tap into that, which is also again a rewilding, right? There's also letting stuff out. I have guys like allowing them to roar and shout and yell and express that suddenly they put a lid on that because they felt it was so inappropriate. That level of that level of masculinity, letting that stuff out, mm-hmm. and why do we need to let that out? Well, it's so it doesn't erupt in places where it is inappropriate, right? So it's giving them a modality, right? Work on this, right? A healthy catharsis. Yeah, and one of the guys, he he went into, um, he said he hadn't been able to go to his local shops, just felt just couldn't get out to do it, just felt disconnected and um, a level of depression, of course. And then post weekend, like twenty four hours, twenty four hour experience, right? went into his local town, went into one of his local shops. And they're like, ah, oh, how are you, man? And he's like, oh, I'm great. It's well, we haven't seen you in ages. <laughs> have you been on holiday? And he's like, no. I said, have you lost weight? There's something very different about you. you look, so, do you look really, you look great. And he said, yeah, I just went, just went and spent 24 hours with this guy. <laughs> you know? Right. And explained and unpacked it with them. And it's just, again, it just, it was a playing with experience. I had them in deep play for work, like playing partner-partner work forehead to forehead. When one moves, the other one has to mirror the movement. And I had them even sparring and play fighting and rolling around and playing mm-hmm. with each other's weights. And again, things that we we almost have lost, like that level of expression or human contact. And I think partly like the three years we've had has meant a real disconnect from human contact. And I explained to one of the guys, like, think about it like this. You wake up in the morning, get hit with early light immediately, right? Serotonin, one happy hormone, tick. Okay, he has a family, okay. Hugging, go and hug your family. Oxytocin, another happy hormone, done. Right, now get out and move more. Okay, so then we have dopamine seeking hormones associated with happiness, done. Right, now we have, um, let's maybe up the um, intensity of it. Then we can bring endorphins in. And then all of a sudden, right, we've got four happy hormones you can put in the happy hormone shaker, give it a good shake and bam, out you come. And you could see there was almost like the guys like, yeah, but that sounds so simple. <laughs> but it is. Right. Take me behind the velvet rope, Tony. You know? Come on. It's so- It's that thing. There's a there's an adage in, in recovery that's similar. Like when you've been sober for a while, 
and you, you know, you're in this 12-step community, at some point you reach this Rubicon where you're like, yeah, I get it, man. But like, what's the next thing? Like, what's the next? I've done all that stuff, like, but I'm still struggling with this. Like, tell me the secret that you haven't told me yet. It's like, no, it's just back to these principles. Mm. You just need to practice them a little bit more. Like I, the human mind wants to find, and you see it like played out on social media. Like what's the one thing that, you know, nobody's telling you. And the truth is, and you're, everything that you are is about this. Like it is, there is no secret. It's these very basic things that we've always known that we need to find a way to return to. And the process of returning to them involves unlearning so much of what, you know, we've been indoctrinated in and opening ourselves up in a childlike way mm. to these, you know, innate pulls that we all have that connect us as humans, whether it's the campfire or the breath exercise or hugging your family members or like, you know, embracing the day by, you know, acknowledging the sunlight into your eyes upon awakening. Like all of these things are so crucial and fundamental. And yet in this age of reason and enlightenment, we dismiss them as trivial because we exist and value our identity from a perspective of, you know, what is going on in between our ears, the intellectualization mm. of everything. And this is like a thing I have with Julie. She's, you know, more, you know, on the polarity of human experiences, I would, I would place her, you know, much closer to you. And because of my upbringing, my default setting is to pivot back to that intellectualization of everything. And I've grown a lot and become much more open to different experiences or we wouldn't even be having this conversation. But when stressed, I will revert, you know, and then she's like, what do you know? And, and, it, and it's, it's hard, man. You know, it's like those, because I, I can see, you know, there's wisdom in both of these things. They have to coexist 100%. on some level, right? Yeah, like, man. and finding that right balance for me of being open to what I know and to new experiences. And also, you know, relying on the intellect when appropriate is like this dance that I'm, I'm always in this, it's not a war, it's more like a, a relationship. Yeah, well, there's symbiosis in that, right, mm. isn't there? Sure. I think, um, you know, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, there is this information rich and experience poor moment and, um, it's just being mindful, like, is there, a, is there values or is there a philosophy in there somewhere within us, right? That we can go, well, the information at least I'm gathering is just, like for me, I have this physical, social, spiritual understanding, right? Within the physical self, I know there's movement and play and sleep and rest and how I eat and digest and sunlight and water, right? And sex, right? Okay, so the information I'm going to gather, I'm going to go and put this button. What I'm going to do now, if I have all that information, I'm going to implement it and action it and experience it rather than, get lost in this information the whole time. It's a bit like studying, right? You can go sure. from school to um, college, university, and then post-grad stuff, and then keep going, keep going, keep going. Because actually the big wide world of when you finally have to go and implement that stuff can be quite scary. So sometimes it's easier to remain in education. And also it sometimes helps feed the ego of when I do get involved in a conversation, I can articulate that mm -hmm. conversation well, and I have enough information behind me to prove that I'm an intellect, right? So there's or there might be a frustrated academic underneath it, right? That needs to learn. And I, I, I very much went into information, information, information. And then I go, right, experience, 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 experience. And I think that's a healthy balance. It's like go and actually practice it, give it time. 
you know, give it the hoodie time, right? Know that this this stuff's always going to be here over here. That we we are mm-hmm. so abundant of information, but if we don't go and experience it, you know, what are right? We and wi- well, wisdom is birthed out of yes. the experience of that information, right? Yeah. Like putting that information into action from that, you know, is is what arises with. Like we have too much information right now, not enough wisdom. If you want the wisdom, you've got to apply the information and experience it. Yeah, because again, it's ac- actioning is the growth, right? So it's the growth happens in action, right? It's going really experience this stuff. And in that, you also find perhaps what it is for Rich, what it is for Tony to experience it, right? So we get our own unique interpretation. So it's not just our own unique interpretation, it's also our unique way of it processing and then perhaps expressing. Right. So, mm-hmm. what is the universe uniquely assigned for you and uniquely assigned for me is completely different. And the more and more I get to experience and be, the more I get to fully tune into what that is, right? Mm-hmm. And to fully express what it is through me, you know, mm-hmm. rather than maybe through the voice of another, you know. Right. Yeah, and I think in that in that place you can find uh, a deeper reservoir of empathy and non-judgment of others. Yeah, I've, there's a funny one around judgment because I've, you know, in this in my kind of online communities, a few of them in there are thinking what others think of them. This judgment, you know, it could be about the playful work or hanging even on the tube, or it could it could be anything within their environment, right? And then it's you know, people I feel that people may be judging me, and then you realise that well, it's judgment. You're judging them for judging you. So judgment is the tear, right? That's where we need to do the work, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, the meta judgment yeah, that's you know, going on. The bigger picture right. of judgment, what is that? How dare you judge me, judging you, yeah, judging me, yeah, judging, judging you. Judging you, right. yeah, man, that's there, right? I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So the book is organized under these four principles, all ours, you know, reboot, reconnect, rewild, and then refine. We've talked a little bit about unlearning, mm. talked a little bit about reconnecting, rewilding. What else can be said about this, you know, process of, of understanding these, these pillars? Well, I think I look at rebooting, it's almost like this, um, there's a lot of practices in there for rebooting, right? Even that the breath that we've discussed is an opportunity to just have a reboot in a moment, you know? Right, like big reboots, like yeah. full life reboots, macro, all micro. the way down to yeah. mini. So yeah. it can, like for me, it's um, very interesting period because a lot of my stuff went online. And um, so I've, uh, there's been an adjustment within that um, that had to happen. So within our environment, so I now have a studio that's set up. And if I'm say mentoring someone, it's now more, more often not, it's online. And sometimes you are receiving 
you know, all kinds of information, right? Mm -hmm. And some of it's like there's a lot in there to process. And and if I left that studio and just opened up the door and walked into the house, my family are then receiving that as well. So for me, it's, you know, I, there's a reboot there. Okay, I'll just stop at the door, take a breath, long exhale, okay, I'll walk out. And then the next door that I open, take a breath, long exhale, walk in, you know? So just breathing, just imagine you had like a crazy day at the office and then a crazy commute home and you're carrying all that stuff and then you arrive at the door and you open up the door and you walk in with all that stuff and you have kids and the kids right. it dying to meet Papa at that moment and mm -hmm. it seems like a lifetime and then all of a sudden you've brought all this this kind of, you could call it toxic, right, information in the house. So that's a, that's a that can be a reboot on a micro level, right? A bigger reboot might be, okay, I'm, I'm going to go and, you know, I might get into an ice bath at home. We have a couple of setups. I have a barrel and I have a big dip tank there. And so that's that's maybe on a on a bigger level of that or you could go even higher than that and i might go to psychedelics or something you know to have a real kind of reboot reconnecting that's for me is mainly around reconnecting to the fact that we're nature and not not separate of it it's interconnected that us and nature we are one in that sense so i think there's the spending more time in those organic situations to become more of an organic being and to have more organic behaviors in those environments everyday environments the more more nature immersion, the more natural the outcome will be, I would say. And then trying to bring as much of that then into everyday environments. So there's maybe the, that reconnection starts off with yourself and then perhaps then it moves out and, oh, okay, maybe I might want to be doing more around the environment or environmental issues that are going on in the world. But it starts, I think, with the, with the human within that conversation of biodiversity. We have to reconnect to the fact that we are nature. And then we realise we're sitting around this huge table of interdependence with the plants, the rocks and the animals, and it's all one thing, right? And um, rather than seeing we're separate of it or controlling of it, rewilding is that state, is getting back to that position of, well, again, what is it to move through a landscape, mm -hmm. to be the landscape, to inhale the landscape, not just reconnecting to the fact we are it, it's rewilding all the behaviours within it, you know? And then refinement is, you know, even when you think you've, absolutely nailed it is to keep going back and keep going back and keep going back to refine things because mm -hmm. there's so much value in that refinement um but more often not i think along that along all of those journeys is to go in with complete compassion for yourself and others right so um there's a guy on one of our last um 100 human experiences i he he comes in and he delivers the, um, a practice on alignment so he had everyone sitting in a circle like on our bums in a long sit, so your legs are straight out in front of you, but you're sitting up like all barefoot. So there's like a hundred people in a circle with their feet all together. It looks amazing with a fire pit in the middle. Love that. Just that alone. <laughs> I was done at that yeah, point. Like, Don't need an alignment just, circle. Yeah, there's no video, but like, you know, Tony's lit up like a Christmas tree, just <laughs> imagining that. Like this is your this is your your dharma and your heaven spot, like oh, a campfire man. and a lot of bare feet pointed in your direction. Yeah, and just doing deep work together, you <laughs> yeah. know, and, and going through that reboot, reconnect, rewild. This yeah. is the experience. And he really brought something that was quite special and it and it drove something within me. So there's um he would ask questions, like, it'd be about alignment, it might be, you know, we did a lot of voice awakening work. You know, I was saying at some stage, we would all been told, like, mm -hmm. from the moment you're born, right? You come out making all this noise in the world, ah, and then everyone's like, shh, 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 shh. Don't speak and Trying to keep you to. quiet, or the children be seen, not heard kind of behavior comes in. And then you sit in a classroom where you're, you have to put your hand up to even speak. So the suppression of and that. And the stakes of what you're gonna say yeah. are heightened. 
So then we could say rebooting. Rebooting would be a voice awakening practice to reconnect to the fact that I have this natural voice and then we rewild the voice, you know, and then, and then there's refinement within that, even looking at to that level. So, he, so within that circle, it's like, well, who... We have a voice awakening coach prior to that. Her name's Kate Lister. She is phenomenal. So she gets everyone playing with their voice and you get people that come up and they're like, oh, a bit awkward, you know? And um, one guy um, on the last, what was his name? He, um, uh, I won't mention his name actually. So he was a 55 year old dude, and he said, "Oh, Tony, when you asked me to come up and speak at the very beginning, I was so nervous." And then, and then we we actually unpacked it and went right back, and it was school assembly mm. where the trauma came in. So the school assembly was, oh, he has to come out to the front stage and talk to a whole tribe of people that he probably hasn't, you know, he's only met a few of them that have become his mates, and he now has to speak in front of that whole audience which some might excel at immediately, but if you haven't been given the tools and the modalities to be able to go up there, a bit like walking into the exam, doing breath before that, then that's traumatic. Isn't mm. that? So his PTSD was in there, right? So whenever you have to stand up, he's like, dup, 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 right. can't speak. So we gave him like voice awakening work. So then you sit, sit in the circle and it would be, Chris would say, in this giant foot circle of 100 humans in sits around the fire, he would say, so if any of you came here today, you know, maybe you had difficulty speaking your truth. If you... Um, felt that you, you've now worked through that and we've processed that. Do you think you can make a step forward? And they do like a, I called it the Angela Riddle, which is my mum. She used to do these bum exercises in that L-sit position, try and move around the lounge like that. So mm -hmm. like hip hinging for a bum. And so it's like this bum shuffle, you'd make a bum shuffle forward or you'd make a bum shuffle back. And he had this whole series of questions, but he went through all the chakras this way, right? It's fascinating, right? And then eventually... You had people forward, people back, all around this circle. So they're no longer in this really organized circle. It's very fragmented, right, in that sense. But they're all moving towards the fire. So they all have this purpose of getting to the fire, this path. And that was the thing about the path. Look around you. Look, we're all walking towards this same direction, but we're all at different stages, you know? So we're all basically being asked of different things and different processes, and we're all at different stages in life, but ultimately we're all on the same path. Mm -hmm. And then he said, now just reach over. Maybe that person in front of you can just about reach them with your toe, but reach and touch them. The person behind you, reach them with your fingertips. And now can you see that we're all connected, you know, on yeah. that path? It was so powerful. Beautiful. You know? Yeah. Obviously, all of this is very holistic and on some level individualistic. These practices and, and modalities and, and lifestyle habits are all about integrating mind, body, spirit, et cetera. The reductive human wants to say, Tony, just give me the three things. Like, what do I, you know, like, what's the most important practice? Or should I do breath or should I do meditation? Or is it important that I do the cold immersion? Like that's, that's the yeah. human animal, yeah, yeah. right? This is a matrix of, you know, countless practices, some small, some big, all of which, you're free to experiment with mm. all of which you can find, you know, in Tony's work and in his book, et cetera. Um, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, especially you're doing media around the book. Like, yeah. what is the what are the three things that I should be doing that I'm not doing? Or we, you know, on yeah. some level, it's about communicating these ideas in a way that's digestible and practical for somebody who's who's trying to understand where you're coming from. Well, again, Nick Mulvey's lyrics always come to mind for me. Happy is the man who breathes in the morning. Um, it's not enough just to breathe in the morning. So we need movement and we need to kind of wake up that physicality, right? And get into the vessel, get grounded, I would say. So move, move more, you know, and move in ways that you 
can't really recognize as exercise in a sense. That might mean um, sitting less on the couch, you know, watching Netflix whilst being on the floor, play with different sitting positions. If you're on Zoom, maybe turn that hour-long Zoom session into an hour mobility session. You know, some ground sitting positions in the book, right, that you can play with. There's six in there. I have tutorials and things like that you can Mm -hmm. have a look at, but have a little play. And if you have kids, just observe the kids on the ground, how they move, and they're your best teachers. Okay, I can do that. I can do that. I can't do that. Just play with it. And you'll find that the more and more you play around on the ground, the softer and more mobile you'll become over time. So what might start off as stiff, you know, you'll get signals to say, that's enough now. I need to move. So Rich, I might be kneeling. Oh, it's a little bit of a niggle there. It's a bit tender. Okay, move. Next thing. Next movement. And the more you move and the more you, and then you go back to it. So you stretch the discomfort over time rather than sitting in discomfort for too long, getting an emotional response and then going, no, I can't hack this anymore. It doesn't work. It's... Just play with the edges of discomfort and comfort until you can push the boundaries of that. Until eventually, like me, sitting becomes more uncomfortable for me than actually being on the ground. I much prefer being on the ground and it's assisted so much within my endurance work. I think in the documentary, there's a, um, the one man, two feet, three peaks. I've just run up Snowdon and back down again and then completed two marathons after that. And there's a whole elevation of like 7,400 that day. And we get back to a campsite and I'm now kneeling on the ground eating food with my kids, you know, and that mobility stuff on the ground enables me to then stand up and move again. Mm-hmm. If I went to sitting, I'd get so locked up in hips and ankles and everything else. So just try and, yeah, think about nourishing movement and the movement will enable other practices. Breath, great, easy, simple breathing practices. You know, it's free. Movement is free on the ground. Don't need a gym membership for that. Don't need to exercise. Working from home anyway, just improve that space create a space where you can move to begin with i guess right so that's that that's um i would then look at right the voice work if you have trouble speaking or articulating breathing helps because then you can remain calm when that upregulated voice comes in you can breathe that but also opening this stuff up I, i i would get a cushion and like scream and yell into the cushion and let stuff out. Just really have a practice of that. It doesn't have to be with the voice coach in a big hundred human circle. It can just be in your apartment with a Mm. pillow. Mm -hmm. If things get too much for you and you feel like you have to let go, it's much better to let go and screw the lid even tighter, you know? Be playful, you know? Can you just look at maybe what's an adult version of the play stuff that we could think of? Dance, you know? Put music on and play with your physicality. Dance. Draw the curtains. If, if you know, no one's looking. Then you know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just have a proper dance. Even and I see myself. Yeah. I'm embarrassed of myself. But Johnny. you can start with shakes. Like you can even start with simple shakes on the spot. Boom, 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 and find that. And you suddenly start to find ah, there's play in that. There's movement in that. And start to let that go because the rigid forms start to break down after a while. And that's not woo-woo again because there's so many studies around this kind of tremor work and trauma releasing work and through vibrations and shaking and that's all there right so stuff gets locked up in the body and that rigidity gets locked up and then the other where i'd really go and i think this is probably the really important one to unpack because we all do lots of this and that's the sleep Mm -hmm. right and but it's not the sleep it's the environment of which we sleep Mm -hmm. right and going back to that inorganic consumption leads to inorganic behaviors and beings. It's the one thing really that it's not so free to begin with, but it's very freeing over time, is to look at the environment in which you sleep that you spend a third of your life in 
and try and make it as organic as possible. So that might mean switching out the soft furnishings and the fabrics and even the paints go to clay paints and just but over time bit by bit by bit that might mean my budget only allows a pillowcase this month just choose a pillowcase if one pillowcase is an improvement it's an organic pillowcase right and just think about that expression then is that's what i'm inhaling that experience for eight hours clean up the air could mean air purifiers right systems like that um if you're in like portobello road like we are now you are not going to open a window and sleep like that right so you mm-hmm. need to think right but I've trapped that in this space. So we know the air quality in here is just as disturbing as it is outside, right? Then you can think, well, lighting, right? How do I get my lighting back to how it would be in nature? So it's less like daytime light, it's more like nighttime. So that's what we call biological darkness. We unpacked a fair bit of that on the the first pod, right, around melatonin. But we now know that melatonin is... um, heals oxidative stress, it's an antioxidant, antiviral work. Um, it contributes towards digestion, um, immune, anti-cancer properties. It's vast, right? Way beyond. And some of those studies around diabetes even, they're suggesting through one journal that it's right, after a number of months of supplementing on melatonin, the change within insulin, they're no longer diabetic. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, like, it's vast, mm-hmm. man. And mm-hmm. so I think we've just, with the anti-obesity, anti-cancer properties around melatonin, that's lighting. So where we could go in the bedroom is then think, right, can I switch my lighting over time to be amber tones? And to begin with, depends on budget, that might mean a glass jar with a tea light in it. Right. You know? Or it might mean a bit more budget, amber glasses. And the other big thing within that environment then is to think firelight, right? So firelight and information around the fire. So if you were in your, in the tribe, let's say, there's one study that we've talked about in the past, which Professor Siegel, University of California, three independent tribes, and not one of them sleeps for eight hours. It's between 5.7 and 7.1 hours. But what's different? There's the, there's the temperature, so thermogenic temperature, the temperature again, there's lighting, and there's also there's stuff that happens around the fire. So that's the communication and what we're absorbing. So when we say inorganic consumption, that also means what you're possibly absorbing mm-hmm. through your phone at night. Not just the lighting, because we can get past that by wearing amber glasses. And we can think, yes, okay, I can still sit up scrolling because I've got my amber glasses on. It's actually what you're consuming. So if it's like murder, thriller, intense stuff, is that conducive with sleep? No. Mm-hmm. So I would go well, keep, try and keep the tech out of the bedroom and think, you know, the bedroom's for bedrooming, right? Sleeping, sex, whatever it is, but try and keep the work and stuff out of there. If you work from home and it has to be, that's the only room that you can work in, then try and really disconnect from it, change something within it to make it more of a ceremony for when you do go to sleep. But yeah, definitely be mindful of the information that you receive before sleep because yeah. that will also play out. So that guy that was running for the tube that morning, it didn't start when he woke up. You know, it starts really from when we go sure. to sleep. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, look, obviously, the more you align your, your, your biological system with the circadian rhythms of the planet, the yeah. more, you know, attuned you're going to be and, the, you know, the, the, the more likely it is that you're going to have a restful night of sleep. I think so much of what people consider to be sleep disorders are really just ruminations of the mind. Like they haven't moved enough to kind of activate the appropriate hormone balance over the course of the day. And I count myself guilty of this. Like I'll I'll live in my head and I'll be looping some narrative Mm. of some 
problem that I have with somebody or you know some resentment that I have or something like that and I can't shut it off, right? I cannot, I can't like every time I try to move my thinking gently towards something more down regulatory, if I'm not being super aware, it'll snap back to that yeah. narrative. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it is like paying attention to that has been amazing. But when I'm in that state, it is an upregulated state and it makes restful sleep close to impossible. It keeps me up at late, et cetera. And I think this is a really common thing. And people are like taking sleep medication because they believe they have a sleep disorder, but it's not a sleep disorder. No. It's an anxiety of the mind. Up regulation again, right? Up yeah. regulation versus down regulation. Yeah, I've I've had, you know, a number of people come that perceive themselves as insomnia again. But you know, you first see it's the environment, the habits within the habitat before sleep. It's one. And then it's putting practices in place that enable you to get to down regulation. So with you rather than allowing the mind to go back, it's not enough to just down regulate and breathe. I'd use stuff like that breathing app mm-hmm. because you just focus in on it. It's a bit right. like counting sheep, but you, you're guiding it through breath. And you go deep with that and it doesn't take long. It does mean taking a device in, but you can do all that on flight mode and turn the screen off. That's, mm-hmm. that's a powerful tool, right? Right. I don't wanna make this about me, but I, I, I can't like have you here and not like at least solicit your input on like my chronic lower back problem. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked too much of it about it on the podcast, so I don't want to linger on it too no, go, much. Man. But I, you know, yeah, it just it's it's really prevented me from being as active and as mobile and as agile as I would like to be. And I've been on this you know learning curve, this education about all the. It's very complicated, like all the different things that could have probably did contribute to this condition and that are exacerbating and perpetuating it from you know stored emotional trauma all the way to you know glutes that that won't fire you know like very basic things to more kind of ephemeral things and 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 trying to kind of settle on a modality of of healing and kind of where I'm at with it right now um, is a combination of multiple things, but a lot of it has to do with natural movement and trying to get muscles that have never fired to start activating and then slowly through natural posture and movement, trying to strengthen these underutilized muscles and you know basically shift my pelvic posture into better alignment so that you know the movements that I wanna engage in aren't causing me pain. Yeah. Okay. So, um, if I observe you when you're sitting, yeah. So you, your right shoulder and right side flexors are quite dominant, and then your head hinges to your left. Yes, always. I'm, okay. I, my head is always going to yeah. the left. And then, even the way that you communicate about your back, immediately your shoulders end up right around your ears. So there's <laughs> an immediate response of this <laughs> yeah. stress that's there, right? So there's an obviously emotional tears to it, right? T- layer to it. I would go, well, if we're talking about natural movement and movement, um, what have we be just been doing for, we've been here a while now, right? Mm-hmm. We've just been sitting, right? And sitting again um, is not a natural form, right? So if we just took natural movement back to its real basics and just said, okay, I need to be performing on the ground in order to heal and reconnect, reboot, rewild, refine those joint actions. And the more aligned my joint actions or more appropriate the joint actions are, the more stable my pelvis and my lower back can be, right? 
Yeah. But every time I see it, I then compromise that, right? Mm -hmm. I go against the way that the, 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 the joint actions, every joint action is compromised through sitting, right? Um, we talked about hip flexors and glutes. Glutes, the reason we have to switch our glutes on because they're so stagnant when we sit, right? Whereas if you squat, you, you don't have that relationship, right? And you're always experiencing your body weight in the same areas of your feet for when you stand up. You could say it's an endurance event, just squatting and standing, right, alone. Look to the Hadza again. Thousands and thousands of years have been living the same lifestyle. They're just as sedentary as we are, right? They spend 10.5 hours sitting, right? They just, it's, it's, it's this notion that they're always busy and active and hunting. No, they spend 10 and a half hours sitting. Right. Just their 10 and a half hours are on the ground sitting. And every ground rest position is we could call like a prerequisite or something that has to be involved, engaged into how we stand and then how we walk and how we run. So when we just go to one sitting form in a chair, which isn't conducive with standing up, there's little wonder why we have chronic back conditions, neck conditions, even knee conditions, because we're no longer taking the knee even into the depths of range that it needs. Yeah. Yeah. So it's then not about the not about it's basically quick fixes of I say quick fixes of further distraction from the truth. And the truth is we just don't move enough, right? And, and we sit for long periods of time, but in inappropriate shapes, which then create symptoms. And then we're trying to then search at symptom relief. So we go and see this specialist, this specialist, this specialist, but we haven't changed the behavior. Right. You know, so I would go to the, uh, I deal with the cause level for me personally. That's where I've always gone with backs and knee injuries is to get the optimal or natural ranges back into them. Right. Right. And, so that would begin and like, still, but still, you still have because you're still having symptom relief. Like you go and see this person, this person, but then what are you doing with that? Otherwise, it's more information, right? Yeah. Well, what I need to do is then flip the experience and say, well, what's the natural, what's the natural sitting positions? Right. Let's just keep doing this stuff because the symptom stuff's working for me right now. It really helps to go and see this practitioner. Sometimes that's just an emotional hug, right? That's what that becomes because it's chronic. It's sometimes it's no longer existing where it did, right? Sometimes there's even a blockade and we hold on to it for a bit longer and we have to find a way, a mechanism of releasing it. But then keep going back into this. Like trigger point works fantastic, but it's not fantastic on its own because you have to go back and see the trigger point specialist mm -hmm. again. Have trigger point specialist and then go and change up your movement and make your movement as organic as possible. So I would go try and flip even to start with because it seems so extreme to think, oh, I'm going to suddenly go and sit on the floor for 10 and a half hours. Just do segments of it mm -hmm. and bring more of it into your everyday, you know? Yeah. Otherwise, it's seated posture that affects the way the, the hip joints behave, affects the way the pelvis behaves because you've created like counter-nutation with the pelvis, compromises the SI joints, um, abs are off right now. I have to work really hard to remain upright. Um, Mid-back, then shoulders can pop up, right? There's so much that happens just from sitting. And the more compliant the chair the more stiff we become in it and the more awkward the positions we get into, right? Right. Whereas if you sit on a really hard seat, suddenly you're actually more aware. Well, if you sit on a really hard floor, you'll be more aware. Sit on a really cushioned floor, you can you have, it's a bit more sympathetic to play with, so that's sometimes nicer. Then you can use supports and bolsters and things to help. So if you're sitting cross-legged, maybe to start if it's too intense, put a bolster underneath your butt. If you're sitting in a squat and you can't get down it because your ankles aren't quite flexible enough, put a little wedge behind your heels. Um, and allow your pelvis to relax in those sitting positions because often there, there's tension there as well. So like relaxing the pelvic floor really helps. So I think lower abdomen, let that stuff go. And then look at the behaviors of the joints, right? How do I mobilize the ankle more? How can I mobilize my hip more? 
And the more mobile the hip, the more stable the knee. The more stable the knee, the more mobile the hip. The more mobile the hip, the more stable the pelvis and the lumbar. And think about that, even that joint by joint approach. I mean, if you apply that joint by joint approach to how we're sitting now, yeah, where's the ankle mobility? Right. Where's the hip mobility? And where's the knee stability? So unfortunately, it has to be lumbar, pelvis, and then the mid-back. And we all know what the couching, slouching, surfing, mm -hmm. um, swiping, typing posture looks like now. Mm -hmm. It's really evident that thoracal spine gets um, a real kyphosis going, right? And the head position ends up more forward. And the problem with that then again is that when you do go to walk, we're no longer aligned. The head isn't up, the chest isn't up, the pelvis, and all those three aren't stacked appropriately. The head's a huge weight. The more forward it is of that base of support, the longer you have to stride. The longer your levers, the more forces you have to deal with. Like you're tall, right? So you have to do even more work, right? Because of the length of your levers. And I, I, I often discuss this with parents with kids. And if you don't keep these modalities of movement alive and you go into a, into a school environment and you don't keep the movement modalities alive as a parent outside of that, right? Like parkour is great for that and free running is great for that because they're really expressing their physicality. It's very natural. That when you get to a certain age, teenage years, you suddenly have massive growth spurts. And whereas if you were divorced from movement and you suddenly weren't moving around how nature intended and suddenly you have a growth spurt, it's like baby giraffes walking around. Right. They have no idea how to move their limbs anymore. Whereas if you carried on moving naturally throughout your day, like punctuated in amongst your day, oh, I'm going to just sit more on the ground or I'm going to hang or I'll do this. Suddenly those growth spurts aren't so alarming because you've created a micro kind of adjustment as, you, as you've addressed it. Mm. So I'd really think about it's the everyday stuff. It's the environment stuff. What can you take control of in your everyday habitat, in your everyday environment? Because otherwise all that work is just, it's literally symptom relief and you really need to get to the cause of it, you know? Yeah. Because we might be going, oh, running's the cause or cycling on the bike's the cause. I would say it's the stuff that you've been doing for 10 and a half hours a day that isn't natural, that right. then you go and try and run with and try and cycle with. Yeah. That then compromises that chain. Yeah, I mean, I think I shared this last time, like my kind of default is, you know, sitting, doing like this yeah. or at a desk, preparing to do something like this and then popping up and immediately going and working out. And then when I'm done, just sitting back down again. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. then what you say, it's like, Okay, so let's just look at stand, getting from the chair that you've been in for hours to going straight to exercise. That's like going, right, here's the jelly and in a real liquid form and I pour it into the mold, right? That's you working out now, the liquid, because you come super loose when you've worked out. And then you put that and then you sit down. Now that's the jelly in the mold and then I set it like that, mm -hmm. you know, without doing the mobility work, the deep ranges. I, whenever, I, whenever I'm even out on a run, I get down into deep squats and I get down into low gate walks. Yeah. Like mid run, you'll just drop Somewhere into that? in there and I'll rest mm -hmm. in it, like a rest on the run and then I go off again. You know, and then when I get back, I'm straight into deep squats. No, I don't have to do all the mobility work, you know, because the squat is enough. It's mm -hmm. got, puts all the dorsiflexion in, all the stuff through the lower extremities, drops the hips in. It's amazing just to get to a resting squat and try and keep going back to that and keep reinforcing it. Yeah, and you, know? you, don't, you, you don't know extra weight or anything like that, just full body movements. I, for you, I, I wouldn't worry about weight at this size time because the, sh the structure can't handle its own weight right now. Right. So why add more to it? Right. So I would start to look at the, f the foundations of that structure. What are the movements that I can be doing throughout the day that will just help reinforce my competency of moving my levers around? 
and being stable enough for those levers to move from, right? Mm -hmm. And then add more weight. Yeah. But you have to get, you know, you have to get that framework and the foundations of that framework super strong. It's know? interesting to reflect back on my life as you're sharing this and to recall like my preferred my preferred posture for sitting was a squat. Like I had incredibly flexible hips and I could sit in a frog-like position, mm. you know, with you know, my butt almost on the ground and my knees up high and all of that, and you know, eat food or do whatever I did as a young child, and maintained a high degree of flexibility as a young athlete, as a swimmer, but through running and these other things that I've done, I've lost so much of that flexibility. I still have it in my shoulders, but really in my hips, hamstrings, glutes, all of that. Like, you know, I used to be able to just no problem put both palms on the ground without bending my knees. Now I would have to really like work up to that. Like so much of that now has just gotten really jacked up. And, yeah. you know, just how and why, I guess through my lifestyle habits and sort perhaps of. through the, you know, it's, but it's all, I know that it's reversible if I give it the intentionality that it deserves. Yeah, but again, it's it's going back to what's what the, what the habits that led to it. So if the preferred sitting position was that, okay, let's start trying to work back to that preferred sitting position because there's so much value in that preferred sitting position, not just flexibility, it's strength to be able to hold it, right? You have to have strength to mm -hmm. hold those shapes. Whereas you could say, right, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna work on, I'm gonna work in the gym, I'm gonna do all this mobility, I'm gonna do all this strength, and then I'm gonna go sit down again. And then, well, well, but we haven't learned anything. We're going back to the same environment, which is the chair, right? I, through working more on like online and suddenly mentoring and, and meetings and God knows what else erupted in the last three years for me, the book coming out and then working documents it meant so much more screen time for me. And yet I got all of it on the ground. But the thing I'd notice is through my own practice, when I'd be coaching people, movement practice coaching, I'd spend much more time crawling. I'd spend much more time in low gate walks to, to the point it was like repetitions and hours of it, something like four to five hours of moving around on the ground. I'd, I'd divorce myself from a part of that. I've had, mm. I've had to mm -hmm. work to get it back in because that was a new phase for me, you know? And whereas I thought, ah, oh, the, the running's enough and this stuff I'm doing and this is enough and still coaching and mentoring or still teaching uh, my online community like three sessions a week is still not enough really, because it's the everyday movements that count. It's throughout the day. Right. right. And when you de-escalated that, what were the differences that you noticed? I noticed it when I, when I, when I kind of went back into, right, I'm now gonna run this Southwest Coastal Path. I just, I didn't, just didn't feel quite stable. feel as strong. Mm -hmm. I would say competent, I just call it competent really. There's a level of competency that goes. So I've now, that's just, that's the part I have to edit. Right, okay, there we go, Ding, and then put that back in again. Right. You know, so what is it in everyday life of Rich? What can I edit? I take it out and I go and work on that part and then I'll put it back in again. Yeah, you know? it's so funny. Like the solution to becoming more competent in order to tackle this massive endurance challenge isn't more running, it's more crawling around on the ground for you. Yeah, more low gate yeah. walk and um, jumping, like jumping from great heights to lower because then that's plyometrics, right? And how quickly, once I've landed, how quickly can I get off because there's, you know, it's 115,000 feet elevation over those 10 days. That means there's, there's, there's eight Everest really, if I'm turning around and running back yeah. in elevation. So not only is that running up, it's running down and dealing with the forces that are on the way down. And there's elements when I do have to crawl, right? But there's 
how much can I put through that physicality that enabled me at some stage in my evolution to be upright that enabled me to run. And in nowhere in that evolution was there ever a chair, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so if we want to become really, again, strong in that physicality, I think we have to just the not, it's not, again, it's not, sit, I was about to say sit less, move more. It's not, it's, it's sit less in the chair, you know, because when you sit less in a chair, you'll move more anyway. Right. Yeah. And not just squatting either, like a, a, a multiplicity of different postures. And yeah, there's so movements. many. Like the beauty of having- Like, like the microbiome, the more diverse, diversity. the better, right? Yeah. So the more diversity of movements and positions that you can- But think biodiversity again, I like, think, you know, rather than, because diversity could be, oh, like I'm sitting in a chair and I just moved and moved. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, actually get getting it. it back to the most organic um, example of that on uh -huh. the ground, you know? So how could I up it even being in my apartment on the linear surface? Oh, I go to the park and I play with different rest positions while I'm on the ground there reading a book. Yeah. And then you've got microbiome, you've got undulating surfaces, you've got other things that deal with, and that's again, neuroplasticity. Each one of those movement patterns that we're working on the ground with, also there's a neuromuscular conversation there. Mm -hmm. You know, rather than, again, being in a chair where we disconnect from that physical vessel, we become divorced from it. and. And with that, we can find ourselves in weird and wonderful ways and hours have passed, right? I'm slouching now, right? It's, all my systems are off, my abs are completely collapsed, my back's rounded. And then how would I get up from here? I'd stand up with this same shape, right? Mm. So, well, what do we do then, Tony, if we're sitting for, you know, these periods of time and, and like Rich gets up and you, and you want to, from your um, sitting for as you go and then train, I would at least get out the chair, like hold the back of the chair, I call it a posture squat, and just allow your heels to pop up and drop into a squat, a few little bounces, stand up, do a few of those, mm -hmm. and then walk off. So why, is, why is having the heel elevated so important? I've heard you talk about that a lot. Well, because again, you can focus on posture, you can start to think about keeping the chest up and the head up then. Whereas if you were to get straight out of the chair and squat down when you've been locked up in the ankles and the hips, more often than not, the back ends up really rounded within that conversation. So it helps with the posture. That's why I call it a posture squat. It helps enhance the posture, yeah. keeps the head up and the chest up. Um, for some, it's it's the fact that the ankle is, there isn't enough dorsiflexion in the ankle anyway to achieve the squat. So then what happens if we try and achieve a flat-footed squat, we end up overpronated in the ankle, the knees and the hips. And that again, isn't the best foundation for standing, walking or running or jumping or balancing. Yeah. So in that case, I would then put a wedge behind the heel. And there's, you can buy cork wedges for squatting now. So you have a thick edge and it works way down to a thin edge. And so to start, if you could go, right, set a timer, Ido Portel's kind of 30 minute mm -hmm. squat challenge, right? Put the thick raise behind the heel, 30 minutes a day for a number of days, right? Can I start to bring my heel down to the thinner edge over time? And then eventually on the thin edge and then eventually to the ground. But that's step by step by step by step, allowing that physiology and the mind to make the micro adjustments that are needed. Otherwise we go straight into it, force the ankle into a position, the knee into a position, the hip into the position, do that for 30 days. I'm just, I do the squat challenge for 30 days. And then what have you learned from that? You've learned to create a really unstable um, foundation really for mm -hmm. how you stand. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've become hyper aware of that I've noticed more and more as I'm paying more attention to what's going on in my lower back, et cetera, is a loss of balance, like a, a, a lack of balance that I used to have. Like if I stand on one foot, like I used to be able to do all kinds of crazy yoga postures and you know balanced exercises. And 
recently I've no, I was like, wow, I can't even hold my my posture stable on one leg, let alone like lift the other leg or do anything like anything compound, like just basic stuff, like putting like standing putting on a sock while I'm standing on the other foot. I find myself teetering, and I'm thinking, is this because I'm getting older? No, it's because you've lost that foundation of stability and and sort of dispersed strength in all the right places to hold your body upwardly stable. Yeah, so I could go, what would the reboot be for that? Um, I, I work with, there's a guy called Tom I'm working with, he's like 77, he plays a lot of tennis. And we've been working on footwork and balance techniques rather than tennis, because ultimately that is what he needs to yeah. play tennis, right? Otherwise he's just relying on whipping his arm out and not getting to the ball in time or creating an injury through that. And it starts off um, being barefoot again, lifting your head, your chest and your pelvis, everything is stacked. And being barefoot, the reason barefoot is so that's your foundation. Again, you make a reconnection to that. So he starts just eyes closed and feeling into the big toes, the smaller toes, the big pads behind them that we call the ball of the foot, then the outer edge and then the heel. Cause you can't, the arch isn't tangible, right? Cause there's no, you can't experience gravity through an mm. arch. But you, well, your lateral arch you can, sorry, but think about the pads where you're making contact to the ground and really tune into them, right? Heighten your awareness of them. And you take your visual state out, so it enhances your proprioceptive state and your vestibular, your inner ear, within that communication, which is like your somato system. So that's based on visual, vestibular, and proprioceptive. And you keep tuning in, keep tuning in, keep tuning in, and start to then move segments. So you try and work like a, imagine like a broom handle from the top to your ankle. And rather than moving with your head, you move the whole pole like a metronome needle. And that's you. But keeping your awareness in the base of support, the feet the whole time and work with that. And then try and draw a circle around that base of the support without creating any breaks in that pole. So the pelvis doesn't hinge or the back doesn't hinge or the neck. It's one mm. long thing working like this, yeah? No camera here, guys. You have to kind of work with me. So it's like a pole being held from the top and the bottom. The bottom is the ankle and you grab the pole from the top being your head and you draw a circle. That's the first stage and work on that. And that's that will start to bring your segments or your understanding how to move your segments around your base of support. Then I would go um, have your feet a little wider and then work from like tick-tocking. So as you go over all your segments with your head and your chest over your left side, you think about lightening your right side and increasing your perception of your left foot, those pads. And then you take your head and your chest and your pelvis right over to your right side, lift your left foot. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you go all the way over and stack all your segments and then lift the leg up. And then you go back over and you lift it. Right, and so Tony's sort of teetering back and forth. Yeah, and you're organizing all of those segments above mm. your base of support. And you really keep tuning, do not lose perception of the base of support. What can happen is we get so lost in the action of like what I'm doing with the leg that we take full focus away from what we're using to balance on, which is the base of support, our foot. And then you can go from right now I'm on one leg and then start to think about, right, can I draw a circle with this left leg, right? Whilst keeping my perception on here. So the key then is to keep your awareness, but also be able to draw a circle with this leg, mm -hmm. like just from the hip, not, not your whole body or not from the foot alone or the knee, it's from the hip to the ankle, proximal being the hip and the distal point being the foot. And you draw a circle, say 10 one way, 10 the other, switch your weight over, 10 one, 10 the other. And that's the first stage. That will make a huge shift already to your balance, right? Mm. Um, getting away from shoes that are narrow in the toe box that compromise those 26 bones, 33 joints and 100 muscles, tendons and ligaments and the proprioceptive feedback they give. Getting away from cushioning because the cushioning also dumbs down the awareness. 
So that study is really important, that one I mentioned earlier, Professor Chris Dorp from the University of Liverpool, that returning back to Vivo Barefoot Shoes, all being barefoot for six months, was um, a 60% increase in foot strength, but also 40% increase in balance. So that was without doing the drills. So I'm giving you some exercises to go with it. So the environment would be the foot. This is like the practices to add to that new environment being nature or footwear that's wide enough to enable your feet to perform like feet. For some, that conversation is really hard because they've become so desensitized to an environment. The foot is quite rigid on another hard surface. So what could we do? Um, I would maybe work on softer surfaces to begin with. And then over time, the, the feet will start to open up and behave. And then with that balancing work, then try hops. So draw a line on the floor. And once you're on one foot, try and hop from one side to the other, all the way along the line, and then hop back again. But do it in the like the running shape, you know, when I say about running. So the head is up, the chest mm -hmm. is up, and the ankles pulled underneath you of the opposite leg. Mm -hmm. Have your hands up and just go ding, 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 and then back again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then change legs. Ding, 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 ding. You only need like the length of this room, or it could just be to begin with a meter at a time, right? And then change legs, hop, 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 and then change legs, hop, 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 and then work with both feet together, hop, 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 yeah. and play with kind of the elasticity and the ground reactional work within that. And that will reinforce the, the when I need to be on and when I need to be off. So you start to get those natural responses to when the glutes need to be on, when I land. Yeah, and the glutes need to be on when I balance. So you can bring all that work in. Mm -hmm. Then there's heckling. Heckling, you can work with another person with it or you can play with yourself with this, right? So you keep that same segments aligned with the head up and the chest up, head, chest, pelvis stacked above your base of support. Tune into the big toe, the smaller toes, the heel. Try and think two thirds of your weight being forward, only a third remaining in the heel. With the other leg that's now off the ground that we've managed to draw circles with and everything else, use that leg to try and throw you off balance. So kick it around, thrash it around, whatever it is, and don't worry about what your head and chest is doing. The objective though is not to put that foot down. And even if that means hopping or jumping around the room to try and get stable again, do that. And that is also a recharging practice. Mm -hmm. You could say that's like mm. dance, you know, to start with. And you're literally just trying to use the leg to throw you off balance, you know? And can you keep tuned into the foot that keeps stabilizing you? Right, so the foot that's stabilizing you is doing everything that it can to just hold you upright, yeah. right? So you're activating all these weird yeah. pathways and muscles that generally aren't triggered. Yeah, and I would go into eventually the language being that not seeing the foot as separate or outside of you. So you are the foot, you know? You are the foot. That's, I think that might be the title of this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some of this stuff we covered, well, sort of, uh, for people that are new and didn't listen to our first podcast, we went into a lot of, we spent a lot of time on your backstory in that one. But one thing we did do was after we recorded the podcast, you took me through some technique work and we kind of ran back and forth on my pool deck and we filmed that and made a video of that, yeah. um, which we'll link up in the show notes there. But a lot of that had to do with thinking about, you know, lifting lifting the foot, like lifting, lifting the leg as opposed to overthinking where you're placing the foot, right? It's like a yeah. pop up. Yeah, rather like than a changing push down. your focus. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So maybe explain that a little bit. Yeah, and I've refined this somewhat now because oh, I've been, I've, yeah, it's, what was that, three years ago? Three years ago, over a lot of miles of refinement and really going deep into kind of the, yeah, the softening or I really like to introducing the language of like leaving no trace, 
you know, like leaving the least amount of impact on the earth. Right, and, and part of that being like, when your foot lands, like how quickly can you lift it back up? Like how gently can you land? And when you're barefoot, like you're very, you're very hyper aware of how, yeah. cause I have a very heavy foot. Like I, yeah. and that was one of the things you were pointing out. Like, man, you're just like pounding it. Like yeah. you're landing so hard. Yeah, whereas it, it, trying to imagine you're like, almost like stealth-like. So um, going back to that head, chest, pelvis is to try and think about keeping all those segments upright. Visual field, open up your visual field so you see everything rather than hyper-focus on one little one area. So if you imagine you're looking down right now as if you're looking at your screen, I can only see really to that glass, the rest of it's a blur. So when I'm running, I have that amount of time to react by the time I get to the glass. Whereas now I'm looking at the, the um, guitar over there, right? I'm looking out the window almost. I still see all of this. I can see the glass, I can see everything. So I have all this time to be really proactive rather than reactive, right? And my movement brain will make all those calculations. That's how sophisticated it can go, right? Visual field opens up. Nasal breathing will help you be more relaxed. Um, visual field will help you be more relaxed while you're out there running. So that's less tension. We become more efficient, right? More efficient and also minimize the risk of injury because we're not tense. Keep the head up, the chest up, the pelvis stacked. Um, think about getting your feet off the ground, but it's not like you're just pulling them up because that would mean kicking your legs that back behind you almost. Think almost like they're, they're, they're like you're riding a bike. They're like my, my, yeah, like a unicycle, so on a cyclic pattern. And because there's a trajectory to the leg, so by the time you've pulled it, you've already moved forward. You know, so you have to think it's like an arc, right? But only pull the leg as if it's going underneath your hip. There's a great guy for this. His name's Nicholas Romanoff. He has the pose method, right? So all that pulling mechanics is in there. So if you he did a great book on the pose method of triathlon, right? That's a brilliant book to unpack because there's cycling in there, swimming in there, and there's, there's running in there. Mm. And it's in a much simpler format. Whereas I've studied like, I'm like a level three in pose and also one of the only six people on the planet to teach pose movement, right? But there's, in, in the textbook version, it can get, can o overwhelm a little bit. It stimulates the intellectual mind, but when you go out and experience it, it's, it's a little different. So you play with just yeah, pulling the pulling the leg, and that gets the hamstrings involved. Not so much about picking the knees up and driving through the knees. You're thinking about your hamstrings, and the hamstrings are huge pulling muscles. So if you think you're the bicep, if you like pull your bicep right now and you flex your arm to do that, that's a bicep. We have a bicep femoris as well. It's like a ha huge hamstring that mm -hmm. we pull. So you get used to the pulling cycles. And then when you're going over terrain, rather than even any thought of putting your foot down, forget that, just think about getting off the ground. Like, and the lighter you get, the better, because it just gets softer and softer and softer. And that's in that pulling cycle, it's refining the pulling cycle. There is a cadence to that, where we have to observe somewhere between 176 and 182 beats per minute. I know I often work with breath with this. I kind of breathe in tempos now, I'm working on refining that, so there's a... <laughs> four little intakes and then four outtakes. Mm -hmm. right? or, and I match that to my tempo of pulling. So it's like pull, mm. pull, 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 pull. And, and So the breath is totally in sync with your running cadence. Yeah. yeah. And then not in, you don't have to get so, more often not we're over breathing. So it's like, you don't need to, you don't need to breathe that hard, right? You can soften the breath. Um, but I really feel that, that, yeah, softening the knees a little bit, thinking about being upright, really tall. I have this language of leading with the heart and letting your feet follow. So by that, I mean your actual sternum, your chest plate. Think about that actually being a lead segment. So it's proud of your face. It's actually further forward than your actual head. 
and that huge weight being your rib cage and your pelvis, you'll be amazed at how we can mm -hmm. repel along it. Almost think like a piece of cellophane in front of you, like a huge piece of cling film like that. And you're literally falling into that with your chest and just mm -hmm. keep picking your feet up. And those feet will stay underneath you. And what I'm discovering out on that path, the, the Southwest Coastal Path, by keeping the feet underneath you, just they're just shock absorbers. It's like having these incredible shock absorbers underneath you, which you can't find when you're having this huge pendulum effect and landing on your heel. There's huge kind of forces you're dealing with there, like landing on a rigid pin, you know? Whereas allow yourself to land underneath you and it's much softer and that cyclic action will come through of it. That video was good though. We covered a fair bit of that. I think that's worth going back to. I, I think mean. so. It, I mean, what you just described is a little bit different because I, I mean, I haven't gone back and watched it in a very long time, but I, I do I do recall something about like, you know, the lifting part. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, in a nuanced way, you're you're letting go of some of that and focused on just the the light touch of the feet and the, I mean, I do remember the leading with the heart yeah. part and the sort of leaning forward aspect yeah. of it. And for people that are listening to this and you're new to Tony and you're thinking like, well, you know, the whole barefoot thing is, you know, bollocks. You gotta, I mean, like we went out and ran in Malibu State Park, Malibu Creek State Park, running over all kinds of <laughs> gravel, small boulders, you know, all roots. kinds of thorns and yeah, yeah. roots. And it was a, you know, varied terrain. I couldn't imagine doing that barefoot. And uh, I, it was a marvel to like watch you, you know, dance over that terrain and and crush it and and do it joyfully. Not like, oh, this is hurting, but I'm gonna like get through it. And then in watching the One Man, Two Feet, Three Peaks documentary, you know, some of those ascents and descents, I mean, under real like wet, sharp, boulders, you know, a lot of like technical, like much more technical as you, you know, get above the tree line and are, are approximating these summits. Mm. And to see you do that barefoot, like it's really quite something. Well, I think there's something to observe in that as well. Like on the first, I went up the day before as well. I, I did like a practice kind of just said to Catherine, I think I'm just mm. gonna go and run up there just to see how it feels. So I did, it was like I did the four peaks really. So I did, yeah, well, I did I snow. You, do, you say that in the, like you went out and kind of did it the day before. Like, yeah. you know, it was like only so, you would do that. So I did snow anyway. the day before and it was like quick up and down, one, 147, I think. And um, it's like a thousand meters plus. It's 2000 something, that one. Yeah. Oh, is it? And then, so that's the, so that's the first, so that's the first ascent and then down, um, which I was, the camera crew, Right on the day going off, they were just like, we had no idea who's gonna tackle it like this. So they then had to position like another guy midway point so they could capture the content as they had aspirations they thought they were gonna run with me, I think. And then, um, so tore up and then on the way down of that first day, um, it was really busy. And so I had to swerve to miss some people. And even if you're in footwear, this, this would have happened, right? I just hit something really full on, broke a toe. And then wasn't until we returned back to where base camp was at that moment where I can then get some plant-based gains on board at that point and then just get off again, back out. I, um, I was just like, oh, okay, the feet don't feel that great. And then we noticed I had a, there was a blood blister that had formed. So I'd obviously already made adjustments getting down because I'd broken a toe. Mm -hmm. The adrenaline and everything of running down on that first day didn't really pay much attention to it. And then went out and did... Um, two marathons after that, it was like 52 miler after that, and then returned back to base camp. And it was really evident like that you could even see that there's a white, like a white marker, like I've been wearing a ring around my toe and then mm. a purple end to it and a purple mm. part behind it. 
and then went on to the next one, the next one. Then Scarfell, Scarfell was next. That's like so. Snowdon is the highest Welsh peak, and then the English highest peak is Scarfell, and then there's Ben Nevis to finish, which is Scotland. And the English one, Scarfell, it's very, it's like boulder fields, like huge, sharp boulders everywhere. And I, from that first one, I think just I lost a lot of the elasticity in that. There's, as I said, I think there's seven thousand four hundred elevation on the first day that then crept into the next two days and getting the mileage in that I'm then doing two marathons, two marathons, and then onto the next mountain. Mm -hmm. There was rigidity in those legs and there was stiffness in the feet. So it then became like when people say about taking up barefoot, that was the example that I could give. It's like I'd lost the compliance and my own compliance and my own softness and my own elasticity and I'd become hitting hard on hard. So it suddenly became like, oh, every rock hurt on that next yeah. one. And then after Scarfellow's out of the way, it was almost like the midpoint. It was like the one in the middle that had to be the one that cracked Tony. And it was, and I had to endure that, I had to go through it. It was almost that was the rite of passage on that event. And then I found that elasticity back in on um, the beginning of Ben Nevis. And then Ben Nevis, we had severe weather came in. Mm -hmm. My intention with that was to, I could have done it with it. Basically, we could have broke it the fastest known time. We could have done it a day earlier. But um, at base camp where we were in Scotland, we arrived back and the film crew were there. And they're like, so Tony, how's that? And what, what's happening tomorrow? And I said, oh, you know, I'm, I think we're going to, um, I think we should go up with, we, let's not go back out now. What we do is we, I want to go up with Katarina and the kids and we go tomorrow morning. So I think it'd be much nicer to make that memory with the kids. And he said, well, what about the record? And I said, like, oh, screw the record. Let's just, it'd be amazing to have that memory. Let's go up with Katarina and the kids. And so we left it. And so instead of going up that day, it was like the next day. And yet um, severe weather came in. So we then had, I think it was minus four and 50 mile per hour winds that came in. So there was no catching the kids mm -hmm. going up that day. Mm -hmm. But it did mean enduring that when we were up there. And um, again, that cold gets in and you then create again what feels like hard on hard with the feet. Yeah. So as romantic as the idea is, there's, there's that. Uh, you can see why through humanity we developed skins and we developed... Um, something that protects us from those environments. Yeah. And that's just a layer back then. It wasn't aesthetics and it wasn't cushioning and it wasn't of an unnatural shape. It was something that was from from the earth, let's say, right? Right. And the lesson from that for the average person who's contemplating getting into the barefoot thing is patience. Yeah, 100%, yeah. And I think that the kind of learning curve, the arc towards competency is much longer than, than people realize. 100%, yeah. I mean, I found myself like I get enamored with it and I do it for a while and then I end up you know, defaulting back. And I don't think I've ever stuck with it long enough to really have the dividends pay off. Of being yeah. Cause I haven't been fully invested in it. Again, I would go into, you know, what is it that we're trying to achieve from it? And you know, what's the purpose and why am I doing it? And for me now it's on that, it's I've I've it's really beyond beyond the physiological, as I said earlier. I think there's that whole neuroplasticity there. There's the microbiome that's involved in it, and just interacting with different environments. That again, we can have that conversation that we are nature, not separate of it, right? Rather than this, right? I'm wearing a huge piece of rubber and I'm disconnected. I'm going to go around stamping my print on the earth, right? It's like, oh, okay, how can I be leave no trace? It's a bigger picture, kind of that, isn't it? Leave no trace. Least leave the least amount of impact mm. on the planet, right? not just when you're running, but yeah, just think it's, 
it's it's that relationship that we can have through running, you know. But yeah, it ticks multiple boxes. But I guess the more and more gadgetry we involve ourselves in, the more and more, you know, heart rate monitors and phones and GPS. How much of that? How much? How much are we losing? Right? Yeah. You know, and you might might start off with just even if it means a walk in the park, just go and investigate that. How's it feel to take your shoes off? You know, there's that school group I took out, and they gave us they gave us the real, you know, because there's no oh adult mask and all the oh I wonder what people think of me. But we they are they invited me to take kids out to this place called Virginia Waters, very near to where we lived in Windsor. They're called Busy Buttons. They're like a um, the unschooling group, creative group. Tony, do you think you can take the kids out rewilding? And I said, ah, oh, kids don't need rewilding. You know, but we have, we'd really like you. I was like, okay, let's <laughs> yeah. go. And we went on this coach and we arrive at this place in Virginia Water and all the kids get off and they're super excited and we go off and walk out into this, um, over a bridge and into a meadow. And firstly, I'd sit all the kids around and get them all in a circle. And I'd say, okay, just, just sit and tune in for a bit. I even bought my adult coaching in at that stage. I'd just have a think, what can, what can you hear? You know, what, what, if you close your eyes, really tune in, what can you hear? You know, and us, we'd be looking for the bumblebee or the bird or the, the sound of a leaf or the bleed of a grass and they were like a lion i can hear a lion you know yeah. <laughs> it's like this is brilliant imagination yeah that's what, where it's at right right so then the next thing is like, okay so i looked at the lao and luella who it's their busy buttons and i said oh, okay let's just get them up so then the kids are up so right, let's try this just take your shoes and your socks off what and i said like, yeah just take your shoes and socks off yeah but um we're not meant to have our feet out and so that, so that was, well, kids do need rewilding, right? Because we've basically put this on them, right, already. And so once they got their shoes and socks, it was, it was, it was the most remarkable scene. It was like embedded in me now. So they, shoes and socks came off. Like literally the moment they put them down and their feet were down, they were off. And they were running around like absolute lunatics, screaming, yelling the lion. They were doing all of that. Completely freedoms. Like that's what it is. That's where it's at. But we've again created the, oh, I wonder what people might think of me if I do this and do that. So, you know, the conversation earlier about that. So the guys said, Lau and Luella, what should we do with them? And I was like, we're not going to, we don't need to do anything. It's done, <laughs> yeah, like, right? Get out of the way. Yeah, just step out of the way, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's a, I mean, that's profound on so many levels. And I think that's kind of a good way to yeah, man. end this, dude. I mean, just to cogitate on that, like how can we have more of that? In yeah, our lives. Invite more right. of that in. Bring yeah. more lion in. Yeah, yeah, know? man. More lions. Yeah, more roaring. More <laughs> yeah, barefoot more roaring. roaring. Okay. <laughs> um, we're going to go wander the streets of London and we're going to roar barefoot. Yeah, Is man. Let's go do, do that. We can do that. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, cool. So, Tony's book, of course, once again, Be More Human. Um, I'll link it up in the show notes and the documentary. Uh, One Man, Two Feet, Three Peaks is on YouTube now. Yeah, right? it's up on you YouTube. can like watch it for free. You can. If you want to uh, support Tony though, you can find it on, I think it's on Vimeo oh, it's also. It's free on and, Vimeo as well now. Oh, is it free on Vimeo Yeah, now? yeah, we're putting, it's just yeah. rolling. There now, you go, dude. Yeah. And are you going to um, film this next adventure? I think we can do it differently. I've um, been speaking to the guys. It'd be really nice to create almost like a diary format. So they're going to meet me at certain stages and then I can bring in the, charities as well, mm -hmm. you know, what we're raising funds for. And what are, you wanna shout out those um, organizations? Well, there's a SAN in Namibia, so we're getting behind the, the kind of a, this um, community there about protecting their lands and their rights. Through sandal making as well, they're making barefoot sandals, which is rather fabulous. And then there's Sonia Guajajar, 
There we go. I did mm. say that right. Have you heard of her? Mm-mm. So there's a documentary that's being built through Earthrise and she is a indigenous, she's a Brazilian indigenous environmentalist activist who is um, a politician as well. And so she is running an election. So she could be the first kind wow. of Brazilian indigenous leader, let's say. And so the documentary is being built and I'll be raising funds towards that documentary that will help amplify that voice again. Uh, Cool. Yeah. Nice, man. Uh, In the meantime, is there a place that is best for us to follow this adventure? Are you gonna, is there gonna be some kind of live streaming thing or just your Instagram? Yeah, as I say, we're gonna build like a diary. So I've got guys that are gonna come out and meet me and they're bringing, it's Chris and Will and Will will edit on the day. So rather than beaming me for 22 days. Right, it would be like kind of a vloggy, vlog type thing. Yeah, we can do like 90 second reels, I think we're putting out there. And that will then include like interviews with people along the way, along the route. And also through those organizations, we can get little interviews going that we can edit those in. It'd be a really nice way of doing it. And then perhaps there is a way of kind of amalgamate, putting that together that will create a mini doc, I guess. Yeah. You know? Nice. Yeah, man. So the best place to check all that out is Instagram at The Natural Lifestyle. And also Vivo, they're behind it. So um, I'm sponsored through Vivo. So they will be, no doubt, there'll be enough stuff going around on their channels too. Yeah, good. Yeah, man. Cool. All right, well, to be continued. Yeah, You find yourself in Los Angeles. So it's good, man. Yeah, Yeah. man, love that. All right, love you, brother. I'm here to support you in any way I can. I just, I love the mission that you're on. I think it's really important. And uh, you're just just a beautiful guy, man. And I think think what you're doing is a great service. So I appreciate it. One beautiful guy's another, man. That's awesome. Thank you. Right on, man. Peace. Thanks. Let's barefoot. That's a big one. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste.